Hey everybody, and welcome to another episode of MTG Rants. I'm your host, Tannen Grace, and as always, I am joined by the enigmatic Ross Merriam. How are you doing today, Ross? Apparently enigmatic. I, I don't know. I, it was like the first word that came to my mind. I was like, I'm going to give him an adjective today, and I it just, I don't know. You know, I it's... I, it's one that I appreciate at least. Okay, I, so I view that as a positive, so we're good. I could have gotten like a really complicated word for gassy. I think that one would have always worked. That one would have worked <laughs> as well. So uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm not really sure where I was going with that. Anyway, uh, on today's episode, we're going to be going over quite a bit of Neon Destiny. Uh, did I say yeah, Destiny? Dynasty. Dynasty. I am so bad about that. Neon oh, I, I do too. So yeah. uh, in in Flesh and Blood, when I'm doing commentary for it. The hero that was, like, the most played hero before the last banning, uh, it's weapon. So everyone has this card, right? It, like, just comes with it. You just, get, you just get a weapon. It's called Rosetta Thorn. And when I'm doing commentary and going really, really fast and, like, trying to keep track of the 17 things that are going on, I, like, you've have you ever been in a booth before, like, a real one, like, while you're doing, uh, like, a broadcast? Uh, no. So it's, like, you and I are sitting next to each other, right? We have headsets on, we're talking to each other, and we're looking at a giant television in front of us that has everything going on in front of us, right? That can get a little difficult, right? Also, someone's talking in my ear, I have notes in front of me, I have an iPad next to me where I'm bringing stuff up and, and scrolling through that, and there's other stuff going on in my field of vision. So it's like, it's 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 complicated, and you're trying yeah, to do sense, this quickly. Sensory overload. Yeah. And, uh, and this is, you know, this is why I have the job, I'm pretty decent at it, but when I'm going quickly, because I normally talk very fast and stuff, and this is why I'm good at play-by-play, I said Rosetta Stone, like, at least a dozen times over the weekend instead of Rosetta Thorn. And I was, like, making the joke. I was like, I need, like, a swear jar for whenever I say <laughs> whenever I say that. And by, by the end of the weekend, I'll just have paid for everybody's dinner or whatever at, at that point. So, Which Rosetta Stone, though, Tannen? Is it Spanish? Is it French? Is it Japanese? Um, uh, th- th- the funny thing is... No, the funny thing is, is like English is the actual language where the game is from. So it's like we could have maybe we just you would need a dialect coach so you so you can speak like a Kiwi. So I don't know. But uh, on today's episode, we're going to be going over Neon Dynasty and its impact on the country. <laughs> Ross gave me the thumbs up. Y'all couldn't see. It. I just couldn't have a laugh. <laughs> He's like, "Good job." <laughs> God, I love you. Uh, we're going to be going over that. And its impact on most of the standard formats. We have a weekend of some results from, you know, Pioneer, Standard, Modern. There's been some legacy and some stuff. We may get into that stuff. So we'll see, like, what we hit, what we missed. Uh, we definitely missed on a few cards, uh, or at least the impact they've had so far. But before we get into that, Ross, how was Philly? You actually got to play in some Paper Magic tournament over the weekend. Yeah. Um, you know, it was a fun trip. It was long because we drove up Thursday after Versus and did not come back until Monday. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah, I was we were, you know, there for four nights. Um, I was I was glad to be home by by the end of it. Uh, tournament went fine. You know, I 7 into 18th, unfortunately, no top 16 with the X2 finish. Um, lost both my matches, both of which were quite close against Is It Merktide? Not a deck that I expected, uh, but had risen up in recent weeks and um, was pretty popular in paper and did pretty well in the tournament. So that wasn't particularly good for me because, you know, pressure plus counterspells, uh, pretty good against my, you know, mostly sorcery speed deck. Uh, made a, a pretty key mistake in the second loss to lose game two after I won game one. Uh, I wasn't guaranteed to win if I didn't make the mistake. I, I think I was still... Uh, oh no, I actually figured out like the line I should have taken would have been much better and would have definitely won the game. But uh, um, 
Yeah. Uh, so, um, regardless, um, you know, re- reasonable tournament. I, you know, beat every other deck I played against. It was seven other decks that I played once and two twice against as it Merc died. Um, I still think the creativity deck is excellent. Uh, wrote about it this week on uh, SCG. So if you want an updated list and you know full sideboard guide, deck guide, all of that uh, stuff, that is up now. Biggest change I made was playing Chain to the Rocks instead of Lightning Bolt. A lot of the decks play two bolts as their sort of uh, last removal spell. Bolt is actually in, sort of in the worst place it's been in a while in Modern. There's just so many things it doesn't hit. Uh, it kills and- the one drops and like that's it. Yeah, and like all the other cards kill the one drops too because they, yeah. they're one drops. <laughs> and when I say one drops, I don't mean obviously like Death Shadow because that's like not an actual yeah. one drop, you know. But... Ragavan and DRC. Yeah, it's not a. It's not a. Look, I'm using quotations here. You can hear it. It's not a one drop. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So uh, yeah, Chain to the Rocks was great. Um, was you know particularly I, I added it to help against the card Murktide Regent. Yeah. You know because Prismatic Ending doesn't touch it. Uh, so you would think you know I, I got a little, you know got to play against Murktides a lot. Unfortunately, one in one game, my opponent had the Force of Negation, which is not a particularly common card. You know, sometimes they have like one or two in their sideboard, but this is a cyber game. I'm sure they brought it in and they you know tapped out for Murktide on like turn three, and I had the chain. They forced it, and I never found another answer. And that was and that. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, but Chain to the Rocks is quite good. That was the big change. There's some other small ones, so y'all can check that out there. Um, the Casino was not particularly kind to me. Um, Especially on Sunday, <laughs> you know, you know what's hilarious. We, you and I, I've probably been there at least three or four times, right? In the yeah. Tournament in the Valley Force Casino. I have never spent a dollar in the casino the entire time I've been there. I like, have I've never, I've never made a bet. Okay, I bought a drink. Does that count? You know, like yeah. you, but you get what I'm saying. I've never gambled a dollar. There we go. I want to say before Sunday, in all the time I'd been to the Valley Forge Casino, I was like slightly down maybe like fifty dollars down mm-hmm. and i've gambled there you know three or four times now that's pretty and then good sunday rate, they yeah. just destroyed me it well, was bad you know casinos weren't built by winners ross it's all yeah. i gotta say <laughs> uh and, and also we watched the super bowl before going out down to the casino uh and uh mccurry has been doing a, a reasonable amount of sports betting Recently, Chris Curry is an, an SCG employee that who's great. We hang out a lot in Roanoke, uh, and he, he came down. He's been playing a lot of Flesh and Blood, and uh, he came out with me to the casino Saturday night, and then didn't play the Flesh and Blood tournament Sunday. <laughs> so that was kind of my fault. It was that, it was that kind of night. Okay. Uh, yeah, that was the night that that I was doing reasonably well. Um, that it's was funny you saying that. I've been I've been perusing over all the results of that Flesh and Blood event quite a bit. Yeah. So. Uh, so he, he ended up not playing, and, and but he made, uh, I think he made seven bets on the Super Bowl, just all d- different individual bets, mm-hmm. no parlays, and he hit five of them. Okay, and, so he did pretty good. So. And one of the two he missed was the over on Odell Beckham's yards, and Beckham was like hurt. 12 yeah. yards shy when he got so, hurt in the first half. It's really funny, um, I only know this because I saw it on Twitter somehow, but like, uh, the artist Drake, you know, like the, the musical yeah. artist, you know, big Raptors fan, I know you're, uh, you know, um, yeah. I'm familiar for with basketball. Him. He uh, he bet like one point five million or something on uh, Odell Beckham getting a touchdown and getting over the yards. And after the like the second catch in the first ten minutes, I was like, easiest bet of his life. And then he like blows his knee out. I was like, oh yeah. no, <laughs> and stuff. So I know a yeah. lot of people because like I think that was like the bet. To, that was like one of the ones that like everybody's like, yeah, this is one of the best bets to have. And it sucks that it's one of the only ones he misses. 
Yeah. And then uh, McCurry also miraculously bet both. He bet on the Bengals who were uh, minus four and a half or, or uh, plus four and a half. Um, and but he also bet on the Rams to win by one to 13. So he was rooting for the Rams to win by between one and four points. They win by three, you know, managed to hit between both of them. Uh, so he, he did pretty well there. Corey and I took a long shot bet that very, very nearly paid off. What was it? We bet Aaron Donald to win Super Bowl MVP. I'm actually kind of surprised he didn't. So. Yeah, and, and there were a lot of people on social media thinking that he would. It was basically between him and Cup at the yeah. end, and especially with that final series, you know, Donald like, put his stamp on the game. And so we, we were we thought we were dead, and then when that final series happened. We're like, oh, we got a shot. Like yeah. we could hit, yeah. and so we're we're you know we're gonna go to the casino immediately. He's like, no, we gotta wait. See who gets MVP. You know, Corey, we were both gonna put down fifty. I I chickened out a bit and only put down twenty five. Corey put down the full fifty. It was plus fourteen hundred. Jesus. We, we, I, I did it for Corey because he was playing Legacy, so I we put it down as one bet for seventy five dollars. Mm-hmm. We would have cashed that ticket for eleven twenty five. Yeah. Net net ten fifty. If we uh, if we hit there, and it would have been seven hundred um, for Corey and three fifty yeah. for me on a twenty five dollar bet, would have been yeah. awesome. Would have been nice. Yeah. Very uh, close to hitting I, that one. I know um, Corey didn't do the best in the legacy event. I know he's a little frustrated. Whatever, saw like his tweet or whatever about it. You know, he's like, I did zero testing as far whatever, blah blah blah. But uh, I did see some of the pictures from the event, and one of my favorite pictures actually has Corey in it because it's him playing legacy. And he's flipping a Delver. Like, you could see him, like, picking it out of the sleeve. And <laughs> nice. the, it's just such... I was like, I need this picture of me. Like, of me doing it. You know, like, that would just be my profile picture for a long time. Yeah. The, the one thing I really dislike about the Valley Forge Casino is the food options are not good. They are not good. Yeah. Yeah. The actual casino, it's horrible. There is a steakhouse on the, the mezzanine level of the casino above the casino floor that is okay, but pretty expensive. And that, like you never, you can never eat there if you're yeah. doing well in tournaments. Yeah. Um, th- then on the hotel side of things, which is no, it used to be branded as like a Radisson. I think it's now just all part of the same thing. And it's two separate towers. There's the casino tower and, the, and they call it the Valley tower. So by the Valley tower, there's a little tavern called the Valley tavern. Um, and their food is reasonable, but when you eat there for the third time in the weekend, it becomes unreasonable. Yeah. Agreed. I actually had food delivered once. It's very difficult to leave unless you have a car. Right. And nobody would drive because it was snowing. It was, we played basketball on, on Friday. It was 60 degrees. We actually we played outdoors, and it was great. And then Sunday, it was snowing. Yeah. Like, I was wearing shorts and a t-shirt and sweating yesterday, and it's in the 40s here today. I'm just yeah. not loving this weather. We had a cold front come through last night, though. We also got we got oddly hosed by the Valley Forge Casino. So there were four of us staying in the room, and McCurry apparently snores, which I learned because I ended up sharing a bed with him. But the plan was, and Corey booked a suite in the casino tower that was supposed to have two queen beds in the main room, and then in the second room have a pull-up couch. And McCurry was going to take the couch, and then the three of us would take the two queens. Um, And that, that was perfect. And when we got there and Corey checked in, they just gave him his room number, we ended up having to go to the Valley Tower. That's where the room was. We're like, that's weird. We get to the room, and it's just a regular double queen room. No suite. And so Corey go, you know, calls, and they tell him, he has, you know, tell him to come down. And he you know, goes back down there. And you know that the, you know, to get from the Valley Tower to the casino floor, you have to walk through that weird hallway that takes forever. Uh, and so he walks all the way back there and talks to them. And they tell him that 
that room that he booked is no no longer exists. It is not available. Don't tell him why. Just tell him that it does not exist. And he's like, well, I mean, I booked it. Like, I can show it to you. Like, why is it online? They're like, yeah, I know it says we offer it online, but we don't have that anymore. And he's like, so can we get like a discount? Because we booked like a much nicer room, right? And they're like, no, like maybe, you know, you know very little. Like they, they offered him. And it's like, well, can we at least get moved to the casino tower? Because we really want to be there. And they're like, no, you're you're in the SCG room block. That's in the Valley Tower. Uh, we can't move you. And he's like, Are you, can you do anything? <laughs> and yeah, we just anything. got stuck in the room in the Valley Tower. They eventually just basically told him, like, you'll have to talk with the manager in the morning. And like we had to play, you know, do things. It, yeah. it was it was bad. And then all throughout the weekend, just random stuff like that would happen. Like uh, I ordered some gelato one night at the T- Valley Tavern, of course. And the next day, uh, Zach, the other person we're staying with, you know, orders gelato and they just are out, don't have any. Yeah. The, the day after that, McCurry goes down and gets, tries to get lunch at the Valley Tavern. And he tells me before he goes down, I was like, because I tried to get him to leave, he goes somewhere. He's like, no, I've been eyeing this chicken parm that's on the menu. And he goes down, orders the chicken parm. I'm like, yeah, we're out of that. We don't, we don't have that. And uh, and then 20 minutes later, he sees somebody sit down at the bar and order chicken parm. They just give that person chicken parm. So we're just like, I guess, fuck us. Yeah, yeah. just fuck us. Yeah, my, yeah, yeah. Exactly. My, my line for the weekend just became, I know we said we have that online, but we don't offer that anymore. For yeah. Anything anybody didn't have. Like, chicken parm, yeah, I know it says we have that online. Can I get a water? Look, I know it says we have that online, but uh, <laughs> we, we don't have that anymore. <laughs> yeah, that was, that, was, that was the weekend. So. Uh, yeah, there were some there were some negative aspects of the trip, but you know, hanging out with friends and seeing everybody is super fun. Seeing all the BCW people, got to see Rick for the first time in a while. I've actually seen him a few times. Recently, Although so, yeah. Corey, and, Corey and I actually missed the dinner, um, so he wanted to take us out to dinner on uh, on Friday, and um, Corey had some meeting uh, that he had to take, and it was at five thirty, and the, the dinner's at seven thirty. And, uh, you know, the place that Rick picked was like 20 minutes away. So we figure like the meeting's only going to take like an hour. It took two. And then, uh, you know, by the time it was done, we figured like, the, you know, by the and by the time we got there, they were going to be, have, you know, done with their meals or whatever. So we just skipped out on the dinner. So I, I missed I missed the VCW dinner, which was unfortunate. But I did pick up enough sleeves for the year. <laughs> so... That's good. I'm very jealous about that, by the way. I'm yeah. actually out of BCW sleeves, and I'm talking to Rick. I was like, yo, I'm going to pick some up when I'm in Indy in uh, a few weeks. So, you need, you need some? Ross is just hes just pulling out packs of Hold sleeves. Up. Now, just packs and packs and packs. Shut up. I hate you. you need some? Right. Uh, no, what I need is a new co-host for MTG Ranch. Please see your <laughs> resumes to Tan and Grace. So sorry. Uh, um, <laughs> I'll be seeing both of you, you and you know, you and Rick, and the. And Tenet, the Tenet's actually old school. He wants you to send the resumes to his home address, which is no, you know please, one no, two please, three Fake please, Street in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. No, but uh, <laughs> I actually had that happen once. Um, like a friend of mine, he like you know he needed some cards or something, and I mailed him some cards. And uh, on Twitter, he was just like, it's not every day that you get mail from the Tan and Grace. And he just posts a picture of the envelope, and I was like, I just messaged him like, hey, can you just like not post my address please <laughs> I'm like if someone really wants it they could probably find it but could you just please not make it yeah, super easy make it a little bit harder for them yeah, please. And he's like oh shit yeah my bad he like you know takes it down or whatever and uh anyway um i will say um we can start kind of like moving into the magic talk or whatever because uh coming up this weekend i actually have a magic commentary job i haven't had one of those in a while but i'll be doing commentary for nrg 
Um, I will not be doing the first day of competition where that is modern. I think I'm doing a modern 10K and a sealed 5K on day two. But day two, I will be doing some rounds of the sealed, but I will also be doing the draft and the top eight. Uh, I have been doing quite a bit of drafts of uh, the new Kamigawa set, like I said I would. Uh, last I checked, I was top 100 mythic. So I've been doing pretty well. We've been, we've been winning a lot. Uh, the set overall is... Ross, when I say the set is complicated, there's a lot going on. I'm, it's an understatement. There's so much going on. There's so many things to like think about. I'm, I'm not going to be ready for this event this weekend. I'm not going to have all the cards memorized. I'm not going to have the names memorized. And there's no way I can get there. There's, there's also, with all the vehicles and mm -hmm. equipment and things, there's a lot of stuff to do with your mana. Mm -hmm. So every turn has a lot of options. Um, yeah, seems like a, a fun limited format, but a very... Oh, it's just It's very surface level complex. Yes, you know, there's just so the much games. Yeah. It's technically complex. And like, I can't tell you how difficult it is where like, when the games drag out a little bit, if you have like reconfigure cards in vehicles, you're just like, okay, exactly how do I layer this? Because like, you can do it all the different ways. You're like, what do I reconfigure where to give me the most possible attacks? You know, because like, I will say this, the first time that I played a really long drawn out game where they had like a couple creatures and I had a couple creatures, but one or two of mine had reconfigure. I was like, yo, this ability is really good. Because I'd just be like, load everything onto the one thing, attack you. And they'd be like, chomp. And I'd be like, unattach the things. Because like my, my creature would still live, yeah. you know, once I unattached. But like, unattach the things to block. And I did this on stream. And I remember there was like the pause in my chat. And then everybody's just like, that was really good. You know, like, like, <laughs> yeah. you, you, like you saw it for the first time, you know, the light bulb go off. Oh my God. Reconfigure is very good. You just get to dominate combat. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And stuff. And so uh, that was, that's been difficult to kind of like, you know, I still feel, find myself like playing combat incorrectly when usually that's like the easiest part of limited for me is attacking and blocking correctly. Cause like, that's what I've done the most, you know, without these new cards and stuff. So that's been really cool. Um, the set is complex, diverse, deep. I love all of it. Uh, I have like a favorite that I'm, that I'm going through, you know, like I have favorite colors and stuff, but other than that, it's pretty sweet. Really looking forward to it, but I'm also looking forward to some of these constructed formats and I know you are as well. And, uh, let's go ahead and just start moving in on like some of the cards and the formats that I'm starting to see some play. And I'll say this, uh, standard actual, actual standard y'all like actual standard, like cards are banned. None of them are changed. Um, happened a little bit on magic online. This weekend and one of the things that i guess i'm surprised and not surprised by is the most popular deck and the one that did the best is just still the blue red deck even with all the cards being banned <laughs> it's still just very very good and beating everybody but uh there was a challenge this weekend and one of the things that i said came was going to come to fruition and you, and you you were as well one of the things that we talked about definitely came to fruition this weekend and this might be the winner on the weekend for most new cards in a single deck is the mono red deck that got second place in the challenge is really cool, innovative, new, but it had like 17 new cards or something in it. And, you know, it's mostly from the fact that it got a bunch of really good help at the one and two drop spot. Yeah, you know, we both had Kumano faces Kakazan on our top eight list. Uh, I think you also had Rabbit Batteries, so both of those making it and, uh, you know, along with Voldar and Epicure giving the deck 12 solid one drops. Um, Ogre had Helm, the reconfigure creature, and Lizard Blades. Um, you know, so two more two drops that have reconfigure that give you some late game punch. And then at the top end of the curve, Thundering Raiju, which we didn't really mention in last week's show, but two weeks ago we did. Uh, and uh, you know, was a card that I thought was better than than the Red Dragon. 
Um, and, and, you know, apparently the people playing Standard agreed. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to read that card off everybody else, just just in case you're not as familiar with this one. This is a, uh, it's a four drops, two red, red. Uh, it's a spirit, three, three with haste. When it attacks, you put a plus, plus one counter on target creature you control. Then Thundering Raiju deals X damage to each opponent where X is the number of modified creatures you control other than Thundering Raiju. So uh, while it's not the same kind of card, to me it kind of has this like Hellrider feel, right? You know, it's like the 3-3 three, three for 4 haste that if you're wide, you know, you've already got a couple things out, which like, let's be real, you're mono red, you got a bunch of 1 and 2 and 3 drops. It's going to help you out a lot. Also, this does double work. With that card that you were talking about, Kumano faces Kazakhstan. Uh, I would say Kazakhstan. Uh, Kakazan. Uh, because, you know, if you play that on one and you play uh, any creature on two, it gets that plus one, plus one counter from Kumano. And then you have, like, another creature left over. And you're like, okay, attack with this, this, and the and the uh, Kaiju. Uh, put the plus one, plus one counter on the other thing. Now you're getting shocked along with all these creatures attacking you. So it's just, like, a very big snowball effect. Anyone who ever played with Hellrider knows that... If they didn't kill your whole board in before you Hellrider them, they're not coming back after that card happens. Yeah, and a lot of the time with this card that you know it, it that is going to make it play better than it initially reads because when you read it, you think, okay, I'm getting four mana for a damage output of five on that first turn, right? The three power by itself, I'll put the plus and plus one counter on something else. I'll deal a point of damage to them as a result. So our baseline is five, maybe, and by itself it's four. So the true the true baseline is four, but in a creature deck, like you're very often going to get five out of it, right? That's pretty good as a four drop, right? Just by itself. But you mentioned that the synergy with other ways to other ways to modify your creatures, and you've got Kamano faces Kagasan at encounters. You also have six reconfigure creatures. If you ever have a creature that's equipped with one of them, that counts as modified. So that's going to add extra damage output as well. Yeah, but, you know, Lizard Blades and uh, the, Ogre Head Helm. And, uh, Ogre Head Helm and Rabbit Battery all count oh, as modified. Yeah, so you actually, yeah, you have 10, uh, so even more. And then, but the, the other thing is, oftentimes putting a plus and plus one counter on a creature is going to allow it to attack when it otherwise wouldn't. Mm-hmm. So now That's you're adding point, yeah. the implied damage of that extra creature attacking when it otherwise wouldn't be able to. That happens quite a bit. You could put a counter on Lizard Blades or on the creature equipped with Lizard Blades. Now you're getting two extra damage out of the counter. So there's a ton of other ways to get more than that baseline of four or five damage output out of this card just on the first attack. And so oftentimes you're going to get six, seven damage out of it. And that's incredible. And like you said, just like with Hellrider, if you just untap with it and a reasonable battlefield, the game is probably over that turn. So... There is a lot of immediate value and value that, that the Raiju even leaves behind in the counters that it put down. Um, and then there is the fact that it is, you know, a creature that is has such a high damage output on the second turn that it demands an immediate answer. So a card I, I like quite a bit. I could honestly see it in uh, Red Decks in Pioneer, um, you know, if they were a little bit more aggressively focused and creature heavy. Uh, just the red decks we've seen because of the one drops that are playable in Pioneer, which is mainly the the prowess creatures. Your deck needs to be more spell heavy. But if we get to a point where there's you know good one drops, maybe Rabbit Battery and Kumano faces Kakazan are good enough for Pioneer. I'm a little skeptical there, but um, you know that there's definitely uh, you know some potential, and, and who knows down the road. Uh, this is a card that just but you know in the right shell is definitely powerful enough to see play in non standard formats. And yeah, and like it's also kind of powering up a couple cards that 
we thought to be impactful and standard, maybe haven't had their day to shine in the sun. And one that I'm looking at in particular is Chandra Dressed to Kill, you know, a very powerful planeswalker, right? But you need to be really, like, you need to be very predominantly red, if not mono red, to get the real effect of this card. And we haven't had a good enough, like, mono red deck since this card came out. And now maybe we do. You know, you have enough, you have that, you have that critical dense rate of, you know, red cards. And I'd also like to mention, you know, another card that's popping up in these. We we, we kind of talked about this, and I think you're just going to see this across Magic. You know, I'm seeing the mana bases. It's usually like X number of mountains, four Den of the Bugbear, and then like one or two of uh, Sokazan, the you know the red legendary land from this set. Because there's no drawback if you're not running snow covered lands. You know, which these decks right now they're not even running the snow covered lands for Frostbite. You know, they're just running uh, you know Play with Fire Royal Eruption. You know, if they want to do that kind of thing, because Playing four Den of the Bugbear, I think, is where you want to be in these decks now that also, like, you have way less of a reason to play the the Snowlands in Standard because Faceless Haven is actually just banned in Standard now. So, like, you get you only get this as your creature land. So, I think this is the build that, like, you should start with if you like Mono Red, if you like aggressive decks in Standard. This is where I would be. Uh, I would definitely be trying out these kinds of cards and stuff, and I really like this deck a lot. I think it, I think it's good. It has a lot of good game and can beat the red-blue decks if they don't have their best disruptive interactive hands. You force them to have that because of how fast your clock is with these decks. Uh, definitely. So uh, I expect the red deck to be... I think red is basically going to replace mono-white as you know one of the default aggro decks. I think mono-white really needed Faces Haven because their land from AFR, Cave of the Frost Dragon, is just not up to the rest of that cycle. It's really just the worst one, uh, especially for an aggro deck. It's so expensive. So losing Faceless Haven, a really big deal for Mono White. Mono Red gained so many powerful cards from this set. Uh, so th that's what I would expect to uh, to happen moving forward. And uh, we're already starting to see it on week one. A hundred percent agree with you. Now, I know there's something else that you were excited about. I kind of mentioned the blue red deck and like how it did really well this weekend, but there's been an innovation on that deck. And, they've actually added a color, and that's the innovation. They've added white, and there's a card that you're extremely excited about. I'm going to talk about this for about two seconds, let you go with it, so everybody at home knows what you're talking about. This is Hanada the Dawn Crowned. It's one uh, It's one blue-red-white uh, for a 4-4 Flying Trampler. So really good stats right off the bat, right? 4-4 Flying Trampler for four mana. It's got uh, two abilities, though. Spells that you cast cost one less to cast for each target. So if you have a targeted spell... You know, one less. And then here's the one line that I'm not a big fan of, but still it's fine. Spells your opponent cast cost one more for each target. And this is a card that I think a lot of people overlooked on the spoiler that I, I saw this and I thought Commander immediately. But this is starting to make some waves in some actual constructive formats. Yeah, uh, we see it in actually a lot of the Izzet decks splashing white for this card. Unfortunately, not either of the ones that won challenges over the weekend. Um, but several in top eights and it's a cool card. One that I kind of overlooked, you know, it just, I think most know, people did Ross. Yeah. Like, you know, it's, it's a four mana four, four that doesn't generate immediate value. Uh, there's plenty of removal spells you can cast to, even with the extra one to trade with it at parity. Um, you know, whether it's dragon's fire or revealing a gold span or, uh, although I guess the cool thing is, you know, if you play this on the draw on turn four, your opponent can't play Goldspan Dragon Attack, Sack the Treasure, Dragon's Fire, your thing, because they need three mana for it, and you can just trade off the Goldspan and feel okay about it. Um, 
So th there are some benefits that, you know, things like that, uh, that just make it awkward to answer. And if you ever on tap with it, you can start doing some really dirty stuff. And, you know, there are they're playing it with a magma opus. Because let's be let's be real. If you play this of magma opus, you can make it six cheaper, right? You can have six different targets. Yeah. Is that how it works? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because here, here's the thing. Magma opus has does deals four damage divided however you want. And then it taps two permanents. Can you? Can you, well, I guess you don't have to have six different targets because you can you can target six different times. Is what I'm saying with the card. Uh, I think you need different targets for the well, the for the damage Hanada to work. Yeah. For, for, well, the thing is, is like, can you do like damage to four things and then tap one of the things that you did damage to because you're technically targeting again with a different ability? I think Hanada will see that as the same target. Okay. Yeah, because I've already seen a picture of it. Somebody took a picture of it and they were like dealing. They were like you know, dealing damage to, like, one to everything and then, like, tapping lands or tapping there, like, whatever. I get a, I get a two-mana Magma Opus or whatever. Yeah. You know, kind of thing. So, you, lots you of also, cool stuff here. You know, all your two-mana counter spells now cost one, so it's a lot easier to win counter wars. I think Hinata mm -hmm. is very often going to be a five-drop. You're going to want to yes. cast it and yes. hold up and negate or Disdainful Stroke mm -hmm. uh, or and Jari Disruption, like, any combination of those cards. Uh, or even just play it and immediately a braid or uh, dragon's fire or something, so that you at least mm -hmm. get a little bit of value out of it. They're even um, playing Valorous stance yep, in these decks, which is great too. because it'll protect it for that mm -hmm. one turn you need to, or mm -hmm. deal with a threat if your opponent tries to overload it. And then the other card I'm seeing, not as common, uh, and I think this might be going a little bit too deep, but it's pretty cool, and that is Lorehold Command. So Ooh. if you remember Lorehold Command, it only has one mode that targets. But that mode, it targets two. It targets two. two. Yeah. Yeah, it's three damage to any target, and then target player gains three life is one of the modes. So as long as you choose that mode, your five-minute Lorehold command costs three, and you're getting a Lightning Helix plus any of the other modes that you want. You know, sack yeah. a, a land, draw two cards, make a 3-2, or pump your team uh, and give them haste. So uh, a pretty cool one to have with Hinata. That one, because it's so weak without Hinata, uh, is not probably not one that, that I'm a big fan of. But you know, it just shows you that there's a lot of powerful things that you can do with the card. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, with it, with when you're building with this card, with a, a you know something like Hinata, uh, the main thing to re to think of is I want I don't want to you know dilute my deck with cards that are only going to be good if I have Hinata in play. Mm -hmm. So Magma Opus <laughs> still a fine card, especially because you know all these decks have Goldspan Dragon and Prismari Command to generate extra treasures and ramp to the, the magma opus. Mm -hmm. And then your counter spells and your other removal spells, all fine. It makes your shatter skull smashings that much better. Ooh, I like that too. Yeah. yeah. Because I like, I'm not even sure. So yeah, like so you, you, you declare targets and then they set in costs. Mm -hmm. So, um, I guess, I guess you could, you just pay red, red to deal one to two different things. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yes. and if, and you can set it for X equals six and pay four red, red, mm -hmm. and you get your, Double and buff. you get 12 damage. So, yeah. uh, you know, works really well with Shatter Skull Smashing there. Another perfectly fine card that you're, you're going to play in your deck. I feel like you need a degree in advanced mathematics to resolve that card correctly. Well, with good thing I have one of those. Yeah, I, I do not. So, <laughs> but I will say this, uh, one thing that's really cool that you, you kind of brought this up is, uh, they've kind of changed the way they've layered certain cards. I don't think layered is the right way to say this, but the way they've worded certain cards like Lorehold Command to have less feel-bad moments in Magic. Because if you've noticed, it's a subtle change, but it happens a lot where cards like that, where the ability is, you know, deal three damage to something in game. It's supposed to be 
uh, Lightning Helix, right? Deal three, gain three. But they don't say that anymore. It's like, you know, it used to just be deal three damage to target, you gain three life. Now they have the deal three damage something, target player gains three life. Because, A, yeah, it can, some cool stuff can probably come up in multiplayer stuff, right? You know, like Commander or whatever, blah, blah, blah. But they want to have less, like, one target, no target, do something else. So, you know, like, the cryptic command thing in the back, it used to be in yeah. the background. It used to be, hey, counter a spell, bounce this. If you removed the thing they're bouncing, their spell doesn't resolve, so your spell would resolve. It wouldn't counter anymore. No, because well, counter targets. The, the thing with Kirby Command was the tap tap their team mode. That's what I meant. I'm sorry. So if yeah, you, if you tried to like ba- yeah. counter their spell, tap your team, and they counter the spell in response, yeah. then their team thank wouldn't get tapped. Yeah, oh, thank or you if for they, fixing that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so it was always with the tap team mode. If you if you chose a one mode that had a target and the tap team mode, uh, you know, you, and they a mode could, that doesn't have a target. Yeah. You remove the target, then the other mode doesn't happen. So they're trying to have that happen less. They want the cards to do as much as possible. So they've yeah. changed the wording on this. It's actually a really good, subtle change that's happened a lot. I've noticed it uh, a lot on Arena recently when using new cards that I have to do extra click somewhere. And I'm just like, wait, why am I having to click here? And I'm like, oh, it says target. That makes sense. And that's pretty cool. One other small thing I wanted to talk about with these blue red decks is maybe you should up your count of uh, Demon Bolts and or Heated Debates in the future if this deck gets a little more popular. Because it seems like there's going to be a lot of Goldspan Hanada decks going around, and you might want to be able to deal four damage to a creature very cheaply. Yeah, so like we're seeing, you know, Royal Eruption in the main deck of the Mono Red deck, and I know you want your, in the main, you want your bird spells to go upstairs, like maybe just main deck those Thundering Rebukes, and make sure that you can kill your opponent's creatures. Yeah. And I mean, like Thunder Rebuke goes to uh, goes to Planeswalkers too. I think, right? Yeah. I remember yeah. Right. So you still get to have Planeswalkers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You just don't get to go to the dome piece. Yeah. Yeah. So like maybe shave a spot or two. We'll see on some of them. Was there anything else in uh, Standard that you wanted to bring up with some of the new stuff? Uh, I would say one small thing that the Orzov like mid range, you know, Lolth, Mitook Massacre kind of decks mm-hmm. are are seem to be adopting the White Dragon AO the Dawn Sky. Mm-hmm. Which, you know, we talked about AO as this kind of strange card Ayo. that, uh, you know, you needed to do a lot to uh, make work because it was this five drop. You also wanted to play a lot of cheap creatures with it. So it was hard to fit at the top end of an aggro deck's curve. But here we see it in a mid-range deck that also has a lot of cheap creatures. They're playing things like Shambling Ghast and Welcoming Vampire and Professor of Symbology. Uh, and, you know, things like that. So in a deck like this, then AO's tr- death trigger works very well. It just uh, becomes another source of card advantage for you when it dies, but is also a reasonable mid-range threat. So we kind of miss the mark in noting that there could be mid-range decks that are built with lots of cheap creatures. And that's exactly what these Orzov decks are like. So a uh, really good addition for them, but, uh, uh, you know, it's a role player. It's not fundamentally reshaping the deck at all because it is, you can't play too many because Lalt is one of your main cards and they're both occupying the same high spot on the curve, but definitely a solid addition to those decks as well. Uh, just wanted to note that. Yeah, I want to point out a couple other small things. Uh, Mono Green is still around. Uh, you know, you're playing Lair of the Hydra now with Besaju, but Invoke the Ancients is a card that uh, is popping up. It's just four ofs across the board. Uh, in these decks, along with, you know, like Reckoner Bankbuster has been showing up a little bit and, you know, some other little things here or there. Yeah. I saw uh, Bankbuster in a lot of aggro decks. Yes. Yeah. You know, fits into all of them. I've even seen some of the uh, the red-black, like, aggro sacrifice kind of decks coming up a little bit. And we're going to talk... I don't want to talk about these, like, in specific with Standard, because we're going to talk about this in another format. But I do want to point out the cards like 
uh, Dockside Chef, along with Experimental Synthesizer and Oni Cult Anvil, have been showing up quite a bit. And uh, more on these cards, because we kind of alluded to this in the last couple of episodes where we thought these might show up in some more formats. And boy, did they this weekend, and in some, some big ways and some really cool ways as well. So uh, very excited about these cards, because I'm a big fan of them in Limited. Uh, so what formats do you want to move on to next? Would you want to do Pioneer? Yeah, let's just go in, in the logical order. Sure. And so uh, there was a pioneer. Uh, there was a pioneer event this weekend, right? There was a. Uh, there, yeah, were, there was the there pioneer were two challenges, challenges and right. a pioneer PTQs. So for pioneer mm-hmm. and modern, we had three events on Magic Online. In standard, there were only the two. Mm-hmm. Um, so a little bit more data to go off of with the older formats, and we saw pioneer pretty significant impact from Kamigawa. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I was going to say, is this the one that was won by? Are you talking about the first one? Uh, this, I think I'm on the challenge. You're you're talking about the the PTQ. Uh, so in the chat, the channel, are you, are you trying to talk about Jund? Yeah, let's go ahead and start with Jund. Yeah. Yeah. Cause so, that's what I have pulled up. So. Uh, yeah. In, it took first in one challenge and actually second in the other. And then uh, I think it has the, another top eight as well. And like you, you may, if you look at the second place list from the second challenge, you may recognize that name, Nathan Stewart. Mm-hmm. As uh, quite possibly the best magic player in the world right now. Yeah. <laughs> All um, he does is win. Yeah. So th- these decks, you know, Jund, Jund Sacrifice has been a part of, uh, Pioneer for a while. They used to play, you know, a bunch of collected companies and um, what was the, what's the black artifact? I'm sure that, yeah, Bolas Citadel. Citadel. You know, that was their high end. We've seen them, uh, you know, replace that high end now with Karn, the great creator. So they get to play one copy of Bolas Citadel on the sideboard and Karn lets you access it, which is really cool um, because, you know, Bolas Citadel, if you're at a high life total, often just ends the game. Uh, I guess a little bit worse in these lists because they don't play um, Catacomb Sifter anymore. Uh, you know, that card's sort of been removed from the deck as well. But you, like Catacomb Sifter plus Citadel used to be this ultimate combo. Now they're they're a little bit leaner. I think their mana is significantly better. But Karn just gives you this huge base of, you know, potential disruption. I like the, the they all have one Treasure Vault as not only a like, land when you need a land, but in the late game, when you just need to go off with Mayhem Devil, if you just have if you flooded it, you can just get Treasure Vault, sacrifice it for four treasures, and then sacrifice the four you're treasures, dead, yeah. yeah, and potentially just kill your opponent. So, oddly enough, a land that sometimes you're going to search, you're going to wish for, even when you're flooded, which I think is really cool. Um, but the new addition to these decks, uh, not a huge one. I think both of these lists are only playing two copies, but with a third in the sideboard to Karn Four. Uh, so that's Oni Colt Anvil, a card that you know I was pretty excited about, um, and you know I'm happy to see show up in this deck. It is a the artifact for a red and a black. It says whenever an artifact leaves the battlefield during your turn, you create a one one artifact construct creature token. Uh, and this ability only triggers once, uh, and you tap sacrifice an artifact and drain your opponent for one life. Um, so you know with just a random treasure lying around or a food, uh, you can start just creating this chain of 1-1 tokens and getting sacrifice every turn, triggering your Mayhem Devils, triggering your Meat Hook Massacres, uh, and it, you know a card that goes very well with Meat Hook Massacre and Cauldron Familiar to where you're just draining them you know, every turn for a significant amount. Also, you, know, you don't even have to use the Anvil, just the Witches Oven Familiar Loop is going to trigger this every turn as long as you do one of the activations on your own turn because it doesn't trigger it doesn't trigger when your artifacts leave on your opponent's turn. 
Uh, so you got to do stuff on your turn, but you can just start generating an extra 1-1 one, one with that loop every turn. It's not, not only are you draining your opponent for a life each time, you're also creating a 1-1 one, one construct token and building up this battlefield. Um, really cool card for this deck. And now, you know, what used to be, I think, a, a kind of clunky deck, and these decks used to play like Elvish Mystic and, and more one-drops, has become a really, really lean deck over the last year or so. I'm just looking at the curve, and the only card in the deck with a mana value over two, the only cards are four Mayhem Devil and four Karn. And that, like, maybe you want to count the Mitook Massacre because that's an X spell, but you could very reasonably just cast the card for two mana against a control that deck. happens a lot, actually. And be, and be very happy with it. So, you know, between Deadly Dispute and Prosperous Innkeeper, you're generating extra mana and then Gilded Goose. So, you, you know, it seems like this is a deck that has gotten enough pieces that it doesn't have to play any sort of underpowered cards, and every card in the deck plays really well with the rest of the deck. Yeah. So, like... It's a pretty obvious inclusion, right? Only Code Anvil, like, it hits everything you want in the deck. It's a sack outlet that gives you some kind of value. It's a card that generates extra value in the form of some other tangible piece. Like, when you look at all the cards in the in this deck, they're doing either one of those things very well, or they're doing both of those things. Like, when you look at, you know, Gilded Goose, you look at Prosperous Innkeeper, you, know, you look at Cauldron Familiar, they're doing some value thing and leaving something behind or coming back a lot. The one thing that I actually really do like about Oni Coat Anvil, and this is if this deck gets really popular, is it gets around a card that we've talked about killing this deck in Hitsuko Consumes All, and this does not get removed along with a lot of your other one drops. So you're still left over with some piece of which to start over again and start to recoup some of your stuff. Because a lot of times if someone casts Hitsuko Consumes All against you and you're this Jun Sacrifice deck, you're losing like six permanents. To that card and then you're losing your graveyard and it's going to cramp your style quite a bit and this is a card that helps get around that along with meat hook massacre and trail of crumbs and you can kind of just start over again you know you can just get the engine going yet again so uh, another spot of the rich get richer from uh you know a a deck from this format that has just been good for a long time it's got the the whole card package that i like a lot I, this is one of my early big winners from Kamigawa, even though it's not like using a ton of cards from the set, but just it seems to make it even more redundant and just resilient. Yeah, and it's you know even though it's not a deck that is using a ton of cards from this set, uh, the addition of Karn is definitely motivated by changes from the set. Karn is excellent in the mirror. If this deck is getting better, you know, shuts down Anvil, shuts down Witches Oven, it shuts down. Uh, sacrificing treasures for mana, shuts down sacrificing food to itself to trigger Trail of Crumbs. Um, so a lot of you know help from Karn. And we also saw, uh, and I want to bring up one point before we get into this deck, but we've seen a huge rise in Azorius and Soul with a lot of additions from Kamigawa. So Karn definitely going to be helpful in that matchup. But before we move on to talking about that, I did want to mention third place in one of the challenges from noted uh, you know Pioneer Grinder Claudio, is another sacrifice deck, and this one is straight Rakdos, a you know a deck that is looks very similar to the one I wrote about a couple weeks ago when I wrote about experimental synthesizer, and it's playing four copies of Oni Cult Anvil, three synthesizers, also playing some voltage surges. That's the red two damage to a creature or planeswalker instant, but you have the option of essentially kicker, sacrifice an artifact, and then it deals four, um, and. 
looks uh, different than the, than the list I posted. Mine was more of an aggro sacrifice deck because I generally like just putting my opponent under pressure so that they can't, they're forced to use their removal on spells that maybe aren't going to break up the sacrifice energies as much. But this one is really built to be, you know, be more linear, playing four copies of Terrarian, two copies of Blood Fountain, uh, you know, a lot of cheap artifacts here, playing Blood Tithe Harvester alongside Voldar and Epicure uh, to get the Blood Token stuff working. So really taking full advantage of Oni Cult Anvil, also keeping the curve incredibly low for Synthesizer, allowing you to play Luris as a companion. This is a Luris companion deck. Um, you know, we've seen a similar deck like this that was playing a bunch of Croxes in the main uh, do pretty well recently. That was a deck I liked. A lot. Uh, this one only crosses in the sideboard because the main deck engine is so artifact focused. But this is another cool looking sacrifice deck that I think could be quite good. I am a little bit worried though if you know the two sacrifice decks are this and Jund, and one of them has Karn and the other one is even more artifact focused. You know, I'm going to be the one that yeah be I'm going to want to be the one that's playing Karn. So the one that might have an oops free win card. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so th this feels to me like a deck that might become poorly positioned soon because people are going to be re reacting to this influx of artifacts that Kamigawa has brought to the metagame, but definitely one that could you know, re-pop up because I, I can envision that the, the metagame gets really hateful for artifacts and then all those decks disappear and now you want to play the more you know artifact-centric deck once all the hate goes away and the one that has Luris as a companion and is really low to the ground and things like that. So uh, just wanted to note that deck, wanted to pat myself on the back a little bit for talking about Synthesizer and being high on Anvil, um, but very, very cool decks we're seeing. Um, and, you know, I, I just, I really hope that we see the pioneer, you know, really reemerge over the course of this year because it the metagame looks cool. It keeps changing with new sets, uh, but you know we haven't seen anything completely broken. We're seeing just cool decks over and over again, and uh, you know this is probably going to be the longest section of the pod because I think this is where yeah. Kamigawa has had the greatest impact. I think it's really gonna, cool. yeah. I, this is something you and I talked about. I thought this was going to have the biggest impact was pioneer because I think this just up to the overall power level of pioneer and then not only that you had so many cards printed in this set that you and i immediately were like yeah this goes in this deck yeah this goes in this you had so many decks already that were like i'm waiting for this card like th this card goes into my shell already and speaking of that is the deck that got second place in the challenge you and i originally talked about this is the deck that got me really excited uh this is blue white and soul you know a deck that i know is really close to your heart you like these kind of strategies quite a bit and the early trophy leader last week in Pioneer was adopting this deck as their deck. And the big winner here, and we talk about this, oh, in Soul Artifact, you know, deck, you know, oh, the, the big winner would be like, it'd be an artifact from the new set. N not so fast. It's actually an enchantment from the new set that's having the biggest impact in this. It's a four of that's gone in this, and it's a card that I've come to love quite a bit, and that's uh, Michiko's Reign of Truth. Now, for everybody at home, this is a saga that calls for one and a white. The first two chapters are the same. It says target creature gets plus one plus one until end of turn for each artifact and or enchantment you control. And then the third chapter, it just turns into uh, a zero zero that has power of toughness equal to the number of artifacts and enchantments. Well, it it gets plus one plus one. For Sorry, each. it gets it gets plus one. Plus one. Yeah. So it's, it's, yeah. So this card, it's a two drop, but like kind of not really. I mean, you could definitely play it on two to get your creature out as quickly as possible. But when you combine it with cards like uh Onathopter and Ginger Brute and All Seed of Life's Bounty that you're seeing. And then you're playing 
you know, uh, artifact lands, other cheap artifacts and enchantments, like that's your entire deck. On average, this is giving something like plus five, plus eight. You know, it's a very large amount. It's not, hey, plus two, plus two, or plus three, plus three. And the reason I like this card a lot is I feel like this is better than all that glitters, which is a card that's it's going to get a lot of comparison to, right? Because it's one of the white. It does a very similar thing, except it's not an enchantment that you have to put on your creature and that you're now getting two for one when they kill your creature. Now the enchantment is left is left behind. You can put it onto something else. You can keep attacking, right? You can keep, you know, bu buffing the right creature every turn, and then it becomes a threat itself. So this is a card that took an established archetype and really kind of pushed it even further. I think this card is very, very good. Um, I was not expecting this, but after seeing it, I'm like, yeah, this just makes sense. This is very good. Yeah, I don't know. I I feel like I just overlooked this card and you know barely knew it existed, mm -hmm. and that was a, a big mistake. It so. got dumped in one of the same days as like a ton of cards in the uncommons, and we kind of just like you know, hey, I'm looking at all the rares, all the flashy cards, and this is just a really, really good role player. Yeah, and I, I I like that you brought up the comparison to all that glitters because this card is so much better than it's all that so glitters. So much better than all it's that glitters. Comical, uh, because it, you know not only it counts artifacts and enchantments too, so you're, you're not losing any of the power output. And it lets you spread out what you make a threat. You know, I've played a lot of Insult X and Pioneer. I think everybody knows that. Uh, I've, you know, I played, is it in the early days of the format? I played the um, Jesk, or it was just a blue eye version in the, the companion era when Lurus was completely busted. Towards the end of that era, the, the Lurus, Azorius, and Soul deck was quite good. Um, and, you know, I've played, I've, I went, uh, it was Michael Jacob I saw playing a lot of Azorius and Soul over the summer when Blackstaff of Waterdeep was first printed. And the deck was doing pretty well. And then people kind of figured out its tricks again. And, and um, you know, uh, it, it faded away. And one of the issues that Azorius and Soul had relative to Izzet was you didn't have that reach of Shrapnel Blast. When you played against Izzet and Soul, if you and you could take that first hit when they ensouled the creature. And usually that was unavoidable. Like you had to do your thing. Um and they would insult you. You take the one hit. You'd untap, kill their their threat, and you know t try to take control of the game. But the second hit of Insoul basically killed you because you know they were going to go wide with Mutavaults and the cheap creatures and pluck in for a few extra damage and get you within Shrapnel Blast range. And there just wasn't much you could do about it. And the Azorius versions they were more consistent than is it? They have. Um, you know, they have actual interaction with Portable Hole that's great, and that was a big deal. Ingenious Smith making them more consistent and being a threat by itself what was a big deal. I'll see it for protection. There was a lot of benefits to White, but you gave up that reach. And all that glitters being such an all-in card where you just put it on the threat and hope it survives was sort of just like more and souls and didn't really provide the reach that Shrapnel Blast would. Because once your opponent takes control of the game, they can just hold up removal and not and avoid getting hit. Michiko's Reign of Truth says, okay, like I enter the battlefield, I pump this crappy Ornithopter, force you to use a removal spell on, on a bad creature. Then on the next turn, I pump a Ginger Brute, force you to use a removal spell on another creature. You know, if you're playing the, the uh, you know, the Niv-Mizzet deck, maybe I just have a Stonecrawler Serpent out that you can't, that I know you can't answer. And so I just pump that twice and kill you. Um, you know, so, you know, the, the, you just have so many more options with Reign of Truth and you force your opponent to have so many more answers because they have to answer two different threats for the first two chapters and they, then they have to answer the transformed side of it. 
So they sort of it sort of forces them to have three removal spells in order to be yeah. safe here. It's like it's like three different cards in one. It's like here's a here's an all that glitters next turn. Here's another all that glitters, right? Kind of. It's you know what I mean. And then oh here's here's a uh, what's the, what's the blue card from Affinity? Uh, the one that pump, that one that had power and toughness equal to all of your artifacts or whatever. Oh, but, Master know, of Ethereum. Yeah, it's like and then here's a Master of Ethereum as well. You know, behind it. So yeah. yeah, I mean this this card does so much. I'm such a huge fan of it. Yep. So that this is the main one that is really making this deck a lot better and. I've seen it in action. It looks really, really good. Uh, I love to see it in Solar Round and Pioneer, so I'm I'm very happy about this. Yeah, another card that's uh, showing up in this deck that's actually been showing up in a few other ones, it's only like a two of in this, but I do want to mention it for a couple seconds because it's, it's kind of relevant too, and that's Eater of Virtue. Now, Eater of Virtue is an equipment, and it's pretty much Bone Splinters, a Bone Splitter, but it's got a little bit more. So it costs one, and it costs one to equip, and it says uh, equipped creature gets plus two plus zero, right? So pretty good rate on the cast and equip, but um, whenever the equipped creature dies, you exile it. And as long as the exiled card with Eater Virtue has flying, equipped creature has flying. The same is true for First Strike, Double Strike, Death Touch, Haste, Hexproof, Indestructible, Lifelink, Menace, Protection, Reach, Trample, and Vigilance. I got through that really quick. I'm really impressed. But you get what I'm saying. So, like, if you just put this on an Ornithopter right? And then you pump your Ornithopter and you attack with it, and they're like, kill your Ornithopter, and you have the Eater attached to it, then everything that the Eater touches for the rest of the game now has evasion as well. So, like, this is just another good artifact that attacks well, but, excuse me, but, like, also gives your stuff a form of, uh, a, a form of evasion, and then if you were to have it on Stone Cold Serpent, they, your card, and it gets removed Eater, your card now has Reach, Trample, and Protection for Multicolored. All of them. And that is scary to deal with for some of these decks. Yeah, and this is uh, this deck has always used equipment very well. Historically, we've seen Ghost Fire Blade as the equipment yeah. of choice. Now we're starting to see people move on, maybe play Eater of Virtue, maybe play Shadow Spear, uh, sort of upgrade those slots even slightly. The uh, the one thing I will say is if you're playing this deck, um, you know, there's a ton of different lists across the results, and they all vary a little bit, but. I see lists that aren't playing for me to vault and mm -hmm. I don't, I don't care if you have to cut spells for them, cut spells and yeah. increase your land count and play for me to vaults. This is a pretty you know mana intensive deck, surprisingly with all the equipment with the, uh, with Lurus as a companion with black staff of water deep that you can keep untapping as your creatures die with animating dark Soul citadels and turning those into threats that are no longer adding mana for you. You can use a lot of mana in this deck and still be fine. Just play your four Muta Vaults and be happy that they're in the deck. They are excellent. Uh, they give the deck so much more resilience. It's one of the best cards in Pioneer for a reason. Just play four copies. Yeah, it makes sense. Uh, so one of the next decks, this one got third behind Hold these on, Hold decks. on, Tan. Go ahead, sorry. There's uh, another card that people are playing in this deck. It's not in every list, but that? it is definitely in some of them, and that's Patchwork Automaton. Oh, yeah, yeah. So this is a card that I'm actually a fan of. Yeah, yeah. two mana, one, one, artifact creature construct has ward two. And whenever you cast an artifact spell, put a plus one, plus one counter on it. Uh, a card that, um, you know, has really high potential here. This is a card you want to play early. This is you know, your best two drop, I'm sure. Um, can be a little bit weak in the late game, uh, but does give the deck another threat. I'm trying to see like where people who are playing this card are finding room. And it looks like people playing Automaton are playing it over um, the the white two-drop, Ingenious Smith. Um, so maybe they're trying to cut down on their the number of colored cards in their deck, uh, be a little bit more artifact-heavy. 
Um, Automaton is really cool because Ward makes it a very nice target for Ensoul because it's hard to answer, though it doesn't have evasion, which is a little awkward. So maybe you want to try to, you know, fit some other ways to give the card evasion. But against like a control deck or just a heavy removal deck without a lot of blockers, that's going to be a, a great target for Ensoul. Personally, I think... I would lean towards Ingenious Smith being better. I think that card advantage is really important, and it's going to make Ingenious Smith a much better card as, as the game goes long. You know, maybe with the, the potential damage output and being an artifact and having Ward, Automaton is a better card early on. Um, but I'd rather just be more consistent into the late game with a deck like this because your early game is already so strong. So personally, I, I lean Ingenious Smith, but. Um, you know, we'll see how things shake out over the coming weeks. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, I kind of lean a Genius Smith too, but the original versions were playing the Automaton and it's a more aggressive card and I kind of like it in a lot of spots I too. I mean, I, I like Automaton. Mm -hmm. And one of the things, you know, when I was playing the deck two years ago, three years ago, even, you know, your two drops were pretty bad. When, when yeah. the deck was initially released, it was Smuggler's Copter and it, this was the best, uh, well, it was the second best Smuggler's Copter deck. Oh, mm -hmm. uh, Mono Black was better. Uh, yeah. Uh, but this was a really good copter deck because animating a copter and being able to attack and loot and, and do everything like that was really, really cool. And when you lost copter, the deck just didn't have a good two drop. And now you have a million of them. You know, there's Ingenious Smith, there's Michiko's Reign of Truth, there's Patchwork Automaton. Uh, and, you know, I feel now we have this embarrassment of riches and that's usually a good thing. You know, it can be a little annoying having to like cut good cards from your deck, but usually when you're doing that, it's a sign that your deck is going to be really good. <laughs> yeah, it's busted. Uh, now, for everybody at home that had their bingo cards for Kamigawa and what they thought was going to show up, you've probably gotten all these right so far, right? You know, like, oh, Mono Red being good. Like, you know, these cards getting played, right? Uh, the, the, the Artifacts decks got better in Pioneer. Who, who saw that coming? Obviously all of us. <laughs> Did you have the Esper Reanimator Vehicle deck showing up and being good? Because I didn't have that one, Ross. But in third place, we have this Esper kind of control reanimator vehicle thing. I don't even know what to really call it here. But lots of new cards getting showcased here. Uh, at the top end, you're looking at Tezzeret Betrayer Flesh. You know, you're looking at Grease Fang, Okiba Boss. I'm going to read this one for everybody at home because this is the one that like kind of is doing the broken thing in this deck and is very new. It's one white and black for a 4-3 rat pilot legendary creature. At the beginning of combat, on your turn, return target vehicle card from your graveyard to the battlefield. It gains haste. Return it to an owner's hand at the beginning of the next end step. Now, what they're mostly doing with that is putting uh, the Perihelion 2 into play. If everybody doesn't remember this card, it's because it was literally unplayable in the past. It's six white white for a legendary artifact vehicle. It's a 5-5 that has flying, first strike, and vigilance. But whenever it attacks, you create two 4-4 four, four white angel creature tokens of flying and vigilance that are attacking. Um, now, it has crew four, which, hey, Grease Fang has four power. That works out pretty well. Now, here's the cool thing. When you attack with this, you're attacking for a ton you get to keep those angels. They stay around. The vehicle goes back to your hand. And then you can kind of like maybe do it all over again. You know, you've got Tezzeret. You've got Faithful Mending. You've got Thirst for Knowledge. And Faithful Mending builds it in, right? With the flashback, right. you just already have it baked in. You turn yep. two Mending, turn three Grease Fang, turn four to Flashback Mending, and you Parhelion. Wash, rinse, repeat. Twice. You're probably dead at this point, right? And, yeah. it, you know, we're seeing these decks. And I feel like maybe there's a... there's th This one is like kind of like Esper Controlish. You know, it's got four Disruption Protocol. You're looking at four uh, March of Otherworldly Light. 
this is a card that I like a lot because not only is it like keep you you, know, you can use that kind of control thing right like you can kill their threats but also you can just leave this in your deck because it also kills hate cards as well while also being cheap right you know you have a redundant copy of uh faithful mending in your hand right you have a redundant redundant copy of the perihelion 2 in your hand you're like well you know pay one pitch this kill your thing uh have mana left over to keep going off this turn is, is it perihelion 2 or just perihelion the second it's probably just perihelion the you second know, is it like a, a regional number you know sure. like it, well, like it's, it's a legendary thing it's a legendary thing so it's probably got a proper name so there probably was a perihelion the first which we need to have at some point in time yeah. right but, but Wizards, can... we need perihelion the first but you think I guess if it's if it's a vehicle, maybe they call it like the two two because it's not a person. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, like it, like if sure. I don't know if they did this in the Star Wars universe, but they built two Death Stars. Did they call it Death Star Two when they built it did, the second it had one? The Roman numerals, but no one ever said it out loud. So. Okay, but like they would probably have called that Death Star Two. I, I bet it, I bet it's not an ordinal number. I bet it's a, a, a what is I can't remember Somehow. the term for for an actual number or like the first second third those are ordinal numbers right yeah. somehow the death star returned just for all the star wars fans at home i'm sure they're gonna love that but uh anyway back to stuff that matters uh, <laughs> i'm sorry i had to i love you but uh another card that's showing up in this that uh might get overlooked is the mech hanger that's the land that taps for a colorless you could have to add one mana of any color you could spend it only in pilot or vehicle spells that's not what this is really about though it does have an ability on the land that says, you know, pay three, tap it, and target vehicle becomes an artifact creature until end of turn. So if you don't have something to accrue the Perihelion somehow, then, uh, yeah, you got, you got some other stuff. So just other ways to do this. Yeah, people do aggressively try to kill your Grease Fangs, right? That, that's that's a big thing. And I've seen, um, so I've been watching Todd Anderson stream this week, and he actually didn't like the Asper versions of, of these decks, and he moved on to playing an Abzan version. And I know you've seen you, this too, yeah, yeah. You talked about, you know, what to call these decks, he had his name for the Abzan version. Just brace yourself. Junkyard. It's an Abzan color deck, which used to be called yeah, Junk. It yeah. uses the graveyard, sure. and it's a lot of vehicles. It works on so many levels. It's a it's a pretty good name. Um, but I I kind of like the Esper versions. I think one of the issues w- with his deck was that there was a lot less control over what was going on because he, like in Abzan you're playing a lot of playing a lot of self-mill you know Seder Wayfinders uh the one really good one is Grizzly Salvage because Salvage can mill Parhelion while digging for turn three uh Grease Fang so I did really like Grizzly Salvage that one was really good but this, the self-mill cards you're just kind of spinning the wheel and hoping it comes up you know triple sevens so uh, I wanted to interrupt you because I actually had a name for it and you've actually like said all the words that are in my name since then i wanted to call it the greasy wheel <laughs> do, do you mean the like the squeaky wheel that gets the grease yeah but like easier than that because it's grease fang and it's like vehicles that have wheels so it's the greasy wheel and you get it like the squeaky wheel gets the grease. yeah so like it, it works ross okay yeah. it works my uh so with uh with this esper deck we're seeing some variation in how it's built i've i see lists here with Faithful Landing, I've seen lists with Charter Course. I honestly would probably prefer the chart. I think maintaining your your card parity is important. You don't have that much to discard. You know, Faithful Landing is for decks that are like super heavy in the graveyard. In this case, you're just you're sort of a reanimator deck, right? You just want to discard the one card and and otherwise you're fine. And the rest of the deck is very controlling, you know, with Tezzerets and uh removal spells and counter spells and a bunch of card draws. So you uh, the faithful money doesn't really fit into the control game plan as well, whereas Charter Course fits reasonably. 
Um, so personally, I, I would favor a chart in that decision uh, if you're thinking about building this deck, but it looks really cool to me. I think going for the just discard to set up my reanimator plan is better than setting it up with self-mill like Todd has been doing, but uh, you know, I'm sure he has his reasons. Um, we did not see any of this deck in the PTQs, which is a little bit interesting. We only have 16 lists from the PTQs, so not as much data to go off of there. Um, but there is just, there's so much, um, you know, so much, so many options, I should say, with, uh, with Kamigawa and Pioneer with all the different, um, uh, with the large card pool, you know, setting up all of these artifact synergies, I see a list that is playing Anchor to Reality. So you can, you know, sacrifice uh, an early artifact, maybe even just a portable hole that you play to, to keep yourself alive and set up a Parhelion with, um, you know, with that um, and, and just crew it normally. That list is playing Hotshot Mechanic too. So Hotshot Mechanic can also crew Parhelion um, because, uh, you know, two plus two is four. Remember Barney the Dinosaur? That works. Uh, so I, I'm seeing a lot of different ways to, to go with the deck, um, but the key is having, you know, a good amount of interaction and card advantage so that you can play a reasonable control game as well as being this sort of reanimator combo deck. So it feels to me like it's a it's a sort of solar flary deck for people that played Magic in 2005. Uh, I, remember. <laughs> and, I remember. Yeah, uh, you know, that, that that's what it looks like to me, which I think is really cool. Uh, and I, I hope to see I, see them you know continue and, and get more and more refined. But personally, I, I would lean into that skit as much as possible and play chart of course. You know, not play card disadvantage spells, even if it's a little bit better with the combo, like I noted earlier, where you can you know have the re discard and re up on your Parhelion. Uh, because really, like once you attack once, you, you should probably win the game. Like you just attack the them for thirteen, over. and, and yeah. you have the two four fours. Like you don't need to attack again. If they don't deal with the four fours, that's just twenty one over two turns. Uh, I like what you did there. I saw, I saw the you know lean into the skid. Yeah, I like that a lot. Uh, speaking of decks that, that were was good already, intentional Tannen. Yeah, I know. So I'm trying <laughs> to give you the benefit of the doubt, Ross. Shut up. Speaking of decks that were good already and got a little bit of upgrade, this is a card that I've seen Todd go as far to say that this card might have been a mistake, and uh, it's kind of upgrading a deck that. I think some of our users, I'm thinking one in particular, are really going to like the fact that it, it, you know, this deck got a new piece of equipment. Uh, when I say equipment, you, you get where I'm kind of going with this. And that is Light Paws Emperor's Voice showing up in the black-white, uh, you know, pants decks, however you want to call them. But uh, we did talk about this card a tiny bit, and I think we kind of maybe underassumed how much it's going to have an effect for this deck in particular. It's one in the white for a 2-2 legendary creature, Fox Advisor. Whenever an aura enters the battlefield under your control... If you cast it, you may search your library for an aura card with mana value less than or equal to that aura, and with a different name than each aura you control. Put the card on the battlefield attached to Light Paul's Emperor's Voice, then shuffle. So, what this does is it's kind of almost like a combo card. It like gives your auras cascade, but they can go to equal, but they can't have the same name. But when you're looking at a deck that's got about five or six different really good auras to put on creatures, once you put that second or third one, it's 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 kind of broken, right? And it you get to search as well. So you can just go get, you know, I know that we were, you know, singing the praises of, of the other version of this card, but you can go get all that glitters 
and just kill people with this deck? Uh, well, you, you would need another two mana aura, which they usually don't, or, or it's less than or yeah, it's less than or equal, uh, which they usually oh, don't true, play. True. Yeah. Um, but like you can go all the glitter is fine, ethereal armor, and now you have this giant light pause, uh, and then you have Griff Spoon to tutor four to give it, um, you know, evasion if you need that. You can find Cartusia Solidarity if you want to play around a uh, Edict effect uh, and make sure you have another creature. Um, so there's a lot of options. Uh, it looks like that this is a deck that uh, it won the second challenge, actually. So, you know, already a trophy uh, on the deck's mantle, which is impressive. Uh, put two people in the money of the other one. It looks like they were both in the top eight as well. Yeah, sixth and eighth. So both lost the, the quarterfinals. Um, so three top eights across the first two challenges, including a win. Pretty impressive. Uh, did not see it in the PTQ, uh, but still a good weekend for this deck and one that we hadn't really seen in a while. Uh, you know, and at times it's been a tier one archetype in Pioneer. So uh, Lightpaw is definitely putting this deck back on the map. The one thing I'm surprised by is I don't see any copies of Kaya's Ghost Form in this deck. Uh, and that's the, you know, when, when I'm thinking about what I want to do with Lightpaw's, I want to play it on turn three with three mana and then play a one mana aura on it and then find some one mana aura that will protect it from removal so I can guarantee on tap with it and then go nuts, right? That that would be my thinking. And so, I, you know, even if it's just one Kaya's Ghost form, that seems really valuable to me. I'm very surprised not to see it in any of the three lists, not even in the sideboards, just nowhere. Um, because, I, you know, I've seen Kaya's Ghost form in this deck before Light Paws. So even without that ability to, as a, you know, to tutor for, um, because it, it just finds auras, right? Like, this is not a card that, that can find your Alcyids, uh, uh, as just enchantments, right? I'm not, because it has to come and enters attached to it. Just want to make sure I've got, I've, yeah, uh, has to, and I'm also saying, you know, I wouldn't want to go nuts with tutor targets for the card, uh, because you don't want to hurt the deck's natural consistency, but I would think a couple things like that, Kaya's Ghost Form or, you know, a different form of evasion other than Griff's Boon, even if it's a little bit worse, um, could be a, a nice addition as a one-of over one of your boons, uh, just in case you need to give your Light Paws something, some other ability to get through blockers. I'm not sure if, if that kind of card exists. I know in, in Modern you could have access to um, the Spirit Mantle. I'm not sure if that's Pioneer Legal. Um, give plus and plus one and pro creatures as, as a two drop. So there are some options here to, to, I think, really increase the power of what Light Pause does, but definitely a really powerful card. That said, I would take Todd's, you know, um, proclamations about how broken this card is with a little bit of a grain of salt. He uh, he doesn't like losing to combo decks, if, in yeah. case you, you know, in case you haven't noticed. You know, he's been playing a lot of Pioneer recently, and he's come out hating every single combo deck and wanting to launch them all into the sun. Uh, so I think there's a pretty clear bias there. Uh, and as someone who is pro-combo deck, I'm here to, you know, fight for their virtue and, and their existence in the metagame. I think having combo around it is a sign of something healthy, and it definitely checks on the sort of battlecruiser magic that I'm not personally a big fan of. Um, and without combo decks to check that, that your, your metagame can often evolve, uh, in that direction, you know, based on these results, it does not appear to me that Orzov Auras is, you know, busted. It just seems like it's good again. And light pause is definitely a, a, a big deal in that. It, it seems to me like the pioneer version of, um, core spirit dancer, right? Like core spirit dancer generated so much card advantage and uh, light pause does the same, uh, in a slightly different way. So to me that like, you know, it's, it's just a similar card to that, uh, 
uh, just for the pioneer version of the deck and and uh you know really you know this is you know this is now just a one of the premier aggro decks in the format again uh anything else in uh this format that's really been kind of standing out to you um no we we saw a few things around you know um mono black playing around with the vehicle that you like um was it blade mm-hmm. of the oni or no, 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 that's, no, no, that's that's the one drop. Uh, give me two seconds. I'm scrolling up to it right now. I, I need to learn these names a, a little better. But uh, Soul Ripper, it's <laughs> yeah. Mukotai or Mukotai Soul Ripper. So, yeah, saw a little bit of that. That seems kind of cool because it's good with things like, uh, you know, Scrappy Scrounger and mm-hmm. um, uh, Bloodsoak Champion and stuff like that. Just a, a good two drop to apply a lot of pressure. Just small upgrades here or there. Um, not Nothing huge uh, really going on. Um, we did get see one copy of uh, Hidetsugu Consumes All, a card we were both very high on. Did not have a great weekend. It was in uh, Niv-Mizzet. Seems like a great addition to the Niv-Mizzet deck. As a, you, know, you didn't really see a lot of Rakdos cards in that deck. Uh, and a solid singleton there. Um, so some small upgrades here or there, but really Orzavoras, Azorius and Soul, and John Sacrifice... Those are your big winners in Pioneer, and those are three decks, uh, you know, and then the, the Parhelion decks are interesting. They, they didn't have quite as good of a weekend as the other three, but I think that's the kind of deck that really is going to take some time to find the right build. Like I said, there's a lot of variance in, in the builds of those decks now, and just how controly versus how combo-y do they want to be? Uh, you know, do they play Tazeret? Do they not play Tazeret? How many mech hangers can you fit in your mana base? A lot of different small questions to answer there. Uh, so it'll take some time to get those decks really fully tuned. Um, but I think it's really cool. Like, you know, if I look at the results of all three of these pioneer tournaments, how many arc light Phoenixes do you, do you think we see? Uh, I saw one deck in the top eight, right? Uh, so I see two in the top 32 of one challenge. I see you go deeper into into this than I do. So I see one in the top eight of the other and none in the, the rest of the top 32. So three across both challenges, one in the top eight, and then, uh, 16th place, the last published deck list from uh, the PTQ. So this is what, uh, six, 80 deck lists, and we see four, um, you know, Phoenix decks, so 5% of the metagame, and one out of 24 in the top eight, which is of just about 4%. Um, you know, for a deck that, you know, two months ago, it looked like it might need a banning of either, you know, of probably Treasure Cruise, uh, it now looks eminently, you know, on par with what the rest of the deck, what the rest of the metagame is doing. You know, maybe some of the new cards lose their luster and we see Phoenix regain its top spot in the metagame. But for now, it looks like the influx of all of these powerful synergies from Kamigawa has sort of, you know, really uh, brought a lot new, uh, a whole different flavor to what's going on in Pioneer. Mm-hmm. Speaking of what's going on in other formats, go ahead and move on to Modern a little bit because we have actually seen... Uh, some of these cards be pretty impactful. And so I'm looking at this, uh, the premier modern event that went on this weekend, and the deck that won. Uh, you know, correct me if you've heard this before, but Amulet is good. You know, it's starting <laughs> to make a comeback. Uh, it won this event, but it does have a three of of a new card in the set. And this is, uh, I think, the deck that we saw. I mean, the deck that we saw coming with making Besejo very good. Uh, and you know, Amulet lands. You know, kind of being a a staple of this format for what I'd say about like five years now. And besides you just a very natural fit into this, right? You know, a card that does come into play untapped. So, you know, you don't get any of the, the cool triggers off amulet, but a card you're happy to play early to cast your spells, your green spells, but another one that's really good at being bounced for some value or, you know, tutored up in some way 
uh, to be bounced to, you know, kill a, a hate card on the other side of the board, or even the mirror slowing down your opponent's bounce land just a little bit as well to keep them from having those big explosive or, or, or destroying their amulet. Mm-hmm. Yeah, lots of cool stuff you can do with it. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of a lot of versatility there it gives you you know easy main deckable answers to Blood Moon even because some of the the is it Merktide decks are now starting to main deck Blood Moon. This is an uncounterable through traditional means answer to it as long as you just hold up the mana you know uh, and and can you know float let the Blood Moon resolve and then channel on their turn. Um, so uh, should help them out a lot in the you know against the most common hate card i would say for them can also uh destroy damping sphere if people move to that card so really good addition for them we also see besage you in you know a lot of red and six decks as a singleton um you know things like the the four color money pile deck uh which you know i personally don't like but uh definitely a good fit there you can see it in um the really cool uh, somebody did well in one of the challenges with Teamer uh, Seismic Assault with Slow Gurk. This is a deck people have tried before, but Besaju, a really, really nice uh, card to rebuy with Life from the Loam and Renin 6. Uh, so definitely a, a good addition for that deck. And I kind of hope that that deck does well. I'm, I'm a big fan of sort of fairish Loam decks. I, I like Loam decks that aren't just dredge Loam every single turn. Yeah. kind of decks like lands and legacy you want it to be a choice you want it to be yeah. like an actual like you want it to be a piece of the puzzle not the whole thing exactly yeah. um you know so really cool that that tech exists and then if you look at seventh place in the premiere event you see a selesnia taxes deck with four copies of besaju essentially replacing field of ruin as ghost quarters five through eight to go with your leonid arbiters and that's really cool. So now you yeah, have, sure. you know, this sort of disenchant main that is also part of your engine uh, and really helps out your mana base. Um, we haven't really seen We saw a bit of taxes when Apparition was first printed, which is now, what, like a year and a half ago. Uh, and we haven't really seen it since MH2. I think the the addition of Prismatic Ending to the format really put a hurting on Aetherfile. You know, for the most part, when you played Turn Running Through like it lived. And now it's mm-hmm. like 50-50 to live, and that's a problem. Yeah. Um, so I like the way the way they went, you know, I, uh, with their build. I've, I've generally been opposed to the Yorian builds of Taxes, uh, which have been around for a while now, um, because I did I wanted to have Aethervile on turn one as often as possible. But now th- that just really isn't something that you should be building around as heavily. And I, I like having just the additional card advantage. There's now other good one drops. I think, you know, Noble Hierarch has always been the, the draw to green for me. But now you have Besaju as well. And then Esper Sentinel, you know, excellent card. Just a staple of the format at this point. And then Oath of Nyssa, great card with Yorian. Helps find your Arbiter or find the Ghost Quarter Besaju's. So it can find either half of that combo for you. Can, you know, hit, let you hit Valley or Stoneforge Mystic on turn two. Uh, really, really good card in this deck. Uh, the rest of it, you know, just seems uh, pretty typical taxes. But I've always had a soft spot for these decks. I know there's a lot of people that really dislike them because they're kind of annoying to play against. But I like a good, you know, fair creaturey magic that uh, plays a bit of a tempo game, but can also draw some cards and win a longer game. Um, and uh, that's sort of what, um, you know, what this deck is built to do. 
You also see a copy of the Lion Sash uh, to find off a of Stoneforge Mystic. Seems like a great addition. And a John Joe in the deck, the new uh, White Legendary Land. Uh, and, and just good... Va- like, I like decks that get really good value out of their mana base. And so, like, using these Ghost Quarters well, having these Pesages, having Horizon Canopy, uh, you know, this deck is cool. I, I hope it sticks around. Uh, I'm There have been, like, probably five points over the last years where it looks like taxes could become a, you know, staple of the metagame, and it never really does stick around. It pokes it, its it, head out through the door, and then it sneakily closes the door and goes back. Yeah, yeah it's 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 always like the, it's like Punxsutawney Phil, you know, it comes out and it sees its shadow every time and runs back into its hole. Sure. Uh, so... Um, you know, hopefully it gets to stick around, but that's uh, a really yeah, cool yeah. application of Besager that I had not considered. No, I definitely agree with you. Um, I've actually registered this in an Invitational, believe it or not. I played this at an Invitational years and years and years ago. Obviously, the cards have gotten much better since. Uh, another new card that's in it too, Lion Sash, making a appearance in the way that you and I thought it would. This is a deck with Stoneforge Mystic in it, so it's just got a Lion Sash in the deck as a you know a way to be found as a just a good. A good answer, a good threat, just prototypical card that you're going to like in these kind of decks because it comes up in a lot of different spots and does a lot of different things. And it's a good mana sink as well in the longer games when you have a ton of that mana. Um, speaking of Lion's Ash, other decks where it's starting to pop up, you see this uh, kind of smattered across the top eight. Lots of of the uh, Hammer deck and different variants of it. Like there was a black-white version. But the one that I want to talk about that's a little bit different is we're kind of moving to blue-white, and people have been playing uh, Lavinia Azorius Renegade in their deck, like as like a one-of, you know, you're seeing Lying Sash. But the card that I'm a little more interested in, I think is really cool that they've been having in here, is they've been having one copy of the Reality Chip. And I want to read this everybody at home, just in case if you're not as familiar with this one. It's one in a blue for a legendary artifact creature equipment jellyfish. That is a sentence I never thought I would say. <laughs> it is a 0-4, and it says, you may look at the top card of your library at any time. As long as the reality t- chip is attached to a creature, you may play lands and cast spells from the top of your library, reconfigure two in a blue. So what happens is, is when this is in play and you have it reconfigured, it's future sight, right? So this is a card that's in their deck for those games that go super long, you know, and they have a little bit of extra mana. And this is a deck that plays off the top of itself really, really well because Everything in this deck is super cheap. You're going to go through multiple cards a turn. Yeah, I com- I completely agree. You know, uh, the Azorius Hammer decks had started to emerge even before uh, Kamigawa. And when I first saw them, I thought, I like Spell Pierce a lot more than I like Thoughtseize. Yeah. Because I want to be the person playing the tempo positive card. And Thoughtseize, even though, you know, as powerful as it is, this is a, and as cheap as it is, it is a tempo negative card. You're trading your one mana for your opponent's zero mana. And, you know, this is why when when Death Shadow was initially emerged in 2018, Humans was one of the decks that really punished Shadow because it, not only was it redundant, so Thought Seize couldn't really ever poke a hole in their curve because it was, it was so redundant at every spot. It was also, you know, a deck that really punished you for spending any amount of mana that didn't affect the battlefield, you know, especially with Thalia and the, the other tax effects. So um, really... Uh, you know, pretty happy to see the Azorius decks even get another push with Reality Chip, as you know, it's a it's a one of in the deck. You can find it with Stoneforge Mystic, and it really you know with uh, with Sigarda's aid, you're able to just pay two mana for your future site. Sometimes have it be uncounterable with Stoneforge Mystic, 
and do some really powerful things in terms of generating card advantage. And that's always been the strength of the hammer deck. It's been, it started out, I remember when, when Tom first built it, uh, Tom Ross, it was a Boros deck that basically played like Infect. It was super all in all the time. And it played things like the, the core one drop that got double strike when it was equipped and stuff like that. And it has morphed into a much more resilient card advantage deck over the years and gotten better as it did that. And this is a card that really leans into that aspect of the deck very well, bolsters that aspect by a significant margin, even though it's only taking up one slot. So I'm a big fan of it, and I fully expect the Azorius builds to overtake Orzov over time. Though I will say it's a little awkward that you don't have an Azorius Horizon Land. It is the one not white Horizon Land that does not exist. Yeah, exactly. Uh, sorry, I might have missed the last thing you said. The audio went out a little bit, so if you're waiting for a response from me, you're not getting it. But let's just go ahead and uh, <laughs> and keep going. Uh, was there anything else in modern that you kind of want to point? Because there's there's a little you know smatterings of stuff here or there. Um, yeah, so we see um, you know you, you see some of the um, legendary lands pop up a little bit. It was mainly Lion Sash, Reality yeah. Chip, and Besaju doing a lot of damage. But if you look at the seventh place list in the second modern challenge. It is a humans deck using secluded courtyard, um, mm-hmm. and it, it, so now uh, essentially, like I said, you know, if, if you listen to the cast last week, I said this is a card that was mainly going to replace Ziggurat. If you look at their mana base, it's thirteen Rainbow Lands, one Ziggurat, which I think is fine, um, and, and then uh, you know four courtyard, four territory, four cavern. I've also seen I got tagged in a post on Twitter of somebody who had trophied a couple times in Pioneer with the five color humans list with courtyard uh, that looks really cool. So we, we might see this pop up in pioneer as well. Um, and then three copies of Upriser renegade, a, uh, you know, a cool card that gets pumped for every uh, modified creature that you control. And so with Thalia's Lieutenant, if you're able to have this battlefield of four or five creatures and then put a counter on all of them, you know, suddenly Upriser renegade gets very big, very quickly, um, not going to be great in the, the matchups where you're doing a ton in combat, but honestly, like there aren't a lot of those right now. The, the decks that are that are attacking only play like you know 12, 14 creatures, things like Shadow and Is It Murktide. Um, so people aren't doing a ton of blocking in modern these days, and there are combo decks you need to race, things like cre- uh, um, Creativity, things like Amulet Titan, uh, like um, Belcher. Uh, so that can give this deck you know a, a jolt in terms of speed that I think it is needed. You know, when it first came up, the the modern metagame was so fair, and your disruption was good against Storm and things like that. Uh, that you 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 were right on par to, to be good, and mm-hmm. the rest of the format has gotten more efficient and a little bit faster. And humans has gotten left behind a little bit. Um, so I, I think Uprising Renegade uh, can be really good in that respect. I also really like seeing three copies of Adeline. By the way, I think that card is just busted. Yeah, um, absolutely. <laughs> um, other little things that have come up. Uh, we're seeing the the red otherworldly card. What is it? Uh, yeah, give me two seconds. I got it. Uh, March of Reckless Joy. That one's oh, been March, showing not, up. Yeah, yeah. Well, you're talking about the one where you you can pitch red cards to make it too cheaper. The, the X spell for red. Yeah. So we're seeing this card show up in Belcher. Uh, you know, and I think that's really cool. Most of your cards are red, and you're able to you know probably generate a good amount of mana, and then you know maybe pay pay what little you have have. And then, you know, exile a couple cards and just get this one burst turn where you're able to look at four, five, six cards or more and find your win condition and, you know, maybe some extra mana 
and really go off. So it's also an instant that says until your next turn as well. So at the end of someone's turn, you can just be like, you know, float a bunch of mana, pitch a couple cards from my hand, do all this, untap, draw, like go off. Yeah. And that's probably a card that they need to counter. And, you know, maybe they're tapped down at that point and you just get to resolve everything or they're just out of counters. So it uh, seems like a good addition to the Belcher deck, um, mm-hmm. which, you know, if you're Todd Anderson, you're probably not happy about. But if you're me, <laughs> me, me too. I'm not a big fan of combo decks, but go ahead. Yeah. If you're me, then then you're happy to see Belcher mm-hmm. do some cool stuff. Uh, I actually played against Belcher round one this weekend. Um, my opponent, you know, had Kahira as a companion to throw me off and it did. I was like, oh, they're just playing a control deck. And, you know, I kept a reasonable hand and then they, you know, I can't remember what land they played turn one, but it was obviously not a control deck. And I pretty quickly figured out what was going going down and they cast a turn three, um, uh, recross the paths. And, you know, I'm like, okay, I'm dead. They like set up their deck. I give them a couple minutes and then they're like, yeah, we got to clash. I'm like, oh yeah, I, I forgot. We, we clashed at the end of this and I just flip over my top card and it's one of my main deck copies of force of negation <laughs> and they're just dead <laughs> because I just, ta- it was, I was on the play and I just tapped out turn four, cast my creativity. I was like, come on, Emrakul, hit the Emrakul. And although I guess, you know, hitting, you know, whatchamacallit on artifact is probably even better. So just ca- t- got to tap out for my creativity and hold up a counter spell and nice. ha- everything was uh, hunky dory. So the uh, last thing I want to bring up with uh, with Modern is uh, a deck that I think is going to take some time to come together, and that is the uh, Azorius Urza deck. It's a deck I know my my teammate Ely Cassis has put some work into and played a little bit of. Um, you know, it's been a sort of fringe deck, but we're seeing them pop up a little bit with four copies of Moonsnare Prototype. A yeah, there's that, actually one in the in the five O dump that uh, that won a trophy. Yeah, so I'm seeing uh, Spider Space, you know, tenth place in a challenge. Uh, you know, so probably had the same record as some of the people in that top eight. Uh, you know, very very nearly on the cusp there. Uh, you know, this card is basically just Springleaf Drum for these artifact decks. He's actually playing four copies of Drum too because they're playing four Menmite, four Ornithopter that can t- and four Esper Sentinel that can tap to both. So you basically get eight copies of these accelerants. And I think that that's been one of the issues in these decks. They're kind of slow and they're, uh, you know, they're really missing the power that Mox Opal gave them to get ahead on the curve uh, and really deploy their hand quickly. You know, the fact that all these cards are, are cheap artifacts makes your thought monitors and thought casts and Spider here is playing eight, eight copies of four, four of each of those, you know, four Urza's, four Nettlesyst. So get, getting to be a little bit more aggressive and, you know, putting your Nettlesis on Menmites and Ornithopters once they deal with the Germ, turning those into threats in the late game, really cool. Uh, but Moonsnare Prototype is definitely a card I'm high on, and I wouldn't be surprised to see these decks, you know, continue to get better as they get more tuned, because this is another archetype that just has a ton of options. You know, I'm looking at Portable Hole, which was one of the cards that really brought this deck out on the map, and they're on the sideboard now. Because he's just decided to take it, the deck in a very aggressive direction, uh, and you know, much less interactive. So the metallic rebukes, portable holes, and teferis that I think were staples of this archetype before are now in his sideboard. And then they're, they're Doomwake actually in fourteenth with a, the, a very similar list, actually playing a Tezzeret in addition to the four Urzas. Uh, looks like he's playing Tezzeret where Spider Space had a Psy. Uh, and he's got one rebuke in the main, but four portable hole, three rebuke, three Teferi in the sideboard. So much more aggressive versions of this deck, to, uh, you know, using the card advantage from Thoughtcast and Nettlesyst and Thought Monitor and Urza and Esper Sentinel to make their aggro deck more resilient. 
so a cool direction to take these decks in uh, and one that, you know, put them both, you know, knocking, you know, one step away from the, the top eight uh, and who knows what happens from there. So I expect that, that these decks will get better over time and, uh, and you know, hopefully we see more of them because there's just so many, there's been so many good payoffs in modern for artifact synergistic decks and there hasn't been enough cheap artifacts to make those payoffs worthwhile. That's really what they've been missing. And Moonsnare Prototype is a good, cheap artifact, one that d- isn't dead when you draw in the late game. It just becomes a removal spell um, and uh, you know really helps bolster these decks, even though it's not a flashy card that jumps off the page. So th- this, to me, is the card that is you know didn't have as much of a splash as you know, some of the other cards in modern over this weekend, but I think long-term we're going to see it. Oh, absolutely. I think you're hundred percent right there. It's just going to take, like you said, it's just going to take time, right? Like, you know, you've got to get the, the numbers correct. And there's and so many options, stuff. you know, there's mm-hmm. just a million cards now that you can play. This is not a Luris deck. So you're not constricted there. Honestly, like, could, could that be, could that be a Yorian deck? Like Yorian's always been very good. There's a, that's a really good point. And I mean, most of your artifacts do something when they come into play. You know, you have like yeah. some some hedge play there with that as well. You know, yeah, you can imagine like portable holding an early creature and then getting something later that's that's even better, or portable holding a, a construct token and then later getting a creature. Maybe you got a Rogan early and then they have one on on the battlefield, so you legend rule and then get the other one when you blink it. So portable hole has some synergy with it. Urza has some synergy. Um, you know, maybe at that point you main deck a lot more of the disruption and Teferi. And you develop some of those synergies. So there's some there's some cool stuff you can do. Um, mm-hmm. Blink your nettle cyst and reset it. Um, but I'm I'm happy to see that these artifact decks really starting to get their due mm-hmm. uh, because you just haven't seen artifact decks in modern since Mox Opal got banned. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I definitely would be remiss if we didn't speak about our sponsor before we got onto the last segment of the show today. So make sure that you're checking out Bear Stern Man for all of your shaving and uh, soap needs. That's BearSternMan.com, man with two ends. I've actually got a uh, new shipment coming in myself. I don't know if you've got anything new coming in, but I've got a new aftershave, a new soap. Uh, one of the soaps I'm pretty excited about, it's got uh, like an oatmeal type thing to it, which is pretty cool, Like especially if you... Like if you if you sweat a decent bit or like you have like itchier skin, I know it's a thing that that helps a lot with that. Like we actually have something like that for my dog, where if she ever you know itches a lot or like has itchy skin, you know we have a we have an oatmeal soap kind of stuff to give her a bath in. Um, and then I've got another hand soap and a shaving soap of the uh, the Barrister Reserve coming as well. And then there's a seasonal one coming too. Anytime they have seasonal stuff, I'm always like, yeah, give me that. Yeah, yeah, give me give me the give me the one that's only available at this at this time of year. I, I want that. So lots of yeah. cool stuff coming. I so want make sure to feel you, special. I want to feel special. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. Uh, so make sure you check them out. That's barristerandman.com. Use code. What's the code? MTG Rants two zero two two for fifteen percent off at your checkout. So make sure you check them out. Um, now before we uh, get to the end here, we had two questions in the mailbag submission. I, I and y'all have been lacking in the mailbag submission over the last year. So I want to make sure that y'all get onto that. You can do that if you're a patron in our Discord. Speaking of that as well, make sure if you are going to the SCG Con in Indianapolis, which is only, what, about a few weeks away now at this point, right? Um, about a month away? It's about, about a month. month. It's about a month. Yeah, about a month away. Ross and I are both going. So we'll have some stuff for you there. Make sure you come up, say hi. Uh, maybe we'll try to have a meetup. Ross and I are going to be pretty busy that we can do in different things, which sucks. You know, if we were like... In the team event together, it'd be a lot easier. 
like we normally are, but we're not. So we're going to be on different sides of the building, I assume, uh, a decent amount. But I will I will be creeping over there yeah. when I can to see how he's doing. I am also currently scheduled to get in late Thursday night, so I'll be there on Friday. I will get in at like noonish on Friday, so I don't be I'm not planning on doing anything on Friday other than hanging out. Tana. So yeah, make sure you come in. Uh, I'm not going to play basketball with you guys, I don't think. <laughs> but but uh, I'll be at the site a good bit on Friday, which I assume you will be as well. Um, yeah, sure. You, you're, you're going to be. I'm, I'm making you go to the site. We'll get some yeah. lunch. We'll go to the site. Uh, like, I'll check into my hotel. I'll meet up with you. We'll grab lunch, and then we'll go to the site. You're, you're and, getting in at um, noon, so you, you can't join me for breakfast at, at Cafe Patachu. I can do that one of the other days, though. Well, but... I'll, I'll, I'll have to be up early to play, you know. True tournaments maybe if i don't day two we can get it on sunday and i'm sure you'll have to be up early for things that so this is my i was worried because i'm used to having buys at these opens so on Mm -hmm. saturday i would always get breakfast at cafe patachu did you hear about you can get a buy in the tournament i'm pretty sure i haven't heard anything about that so i'm pretty positive on i think i read somewhere on friday they have trials and the winner of the trial gets a buy round one of the well, our, our our third teammate Harlan, I don't think is getting in until later on Friday. Well, so maybe you can get maybe you can get somebody to sit in for him, and maybe they'll let you if you have two out of the yeah. three. I don't know. Like, and, be, and even if we have one buy, like that's probably not enough. Cafe Patachu yeah. is always busy, so I think what I'm going to do is make a reservation for Friday morning and get my my Cuban breakfast. But that's something that people should look into if you're going to be there on Friday, which is something they probably should have told people a little sooner so they could you know make plans to be there on Friday because like that seems like a good draw to me. Like if you if 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 I knew that of a tournament, I would I would play in something the day before and try to get. That round one by yeah but um that was a that was our most common loss day one of opens <laughs> during our team we lost round one multiple times we, uh, we lost round one if you remember the very first time i teamed with the all in brennan and, yeah and you were yeah. like all worried you're like oh no and because and I, we, I, w- I went out on a limb i was playing blue moon which mm-hmm. was you know not a well-established deck at the time but i thought it was good i had done some testing um and i got paired against one of the worst matchups in the format which was eldrazi tron and you know just you know, got pretty soundly beat, and now and I was just worried because you know, anytime you try to like metagame hard for modern, sometimes modern tournaments just you, you just know miss. throw yeah. that out the window. Yeah, and, and you play against a lot of random stuff, especially in the early rounds. So I took that risk of playing a more metagame deck, um, and you know, ran into a bad matchup round one, and we lost the round. So I'm like worried that I'm going to drag down this team because all have been crushing team events forever. And then, you know, we did not, as a team, we did not lose again. I think I 6-3 overall in the day and got a clutch win around nine. I'm sure you remember the match against um, against mm-hmm. KCI when in, in game three, Brennan just, le- like the, the, my opponent resolves a KCI, but has to pass the turn. And Brennan just leans over and whispers into my ear, you should draw a braid. And I just yeah. rip a braid off the top and kill the KCI and easily win the game. <laughs> I just was like this, to look over to him when I drew it. I was like, are you a sorcerer? Like, <laughs> was it the tournament where I was sick and like, I think I like 13-0 and I don't remember any of it? Yes, or whatever? that was yeah, okay. that one. Yeah, you just yeah. couldn't lose. And Brennan yeah. was playing the horrible Zor. No, that no, was not the same no, one. Brennan was, was not, not playing the horrible Zor. Zor. He was deck. playing blue-black control in this one. Mm, was I think. He was playing Demir control in, in Dallas when we lost. Yeah, the, I think he played it multiple times. Uh, who but, cares what he was playing? Yeah, anyway. I don't know. But it, it, I think he was playing he was playing a reasonable deck. Uh, and you were unbeatable, and I, I actually was undefeated in the Swiss on day two, um, which yeah, and this, we we played yeah, five is, rounds and then drew the last yeah. one, and then I lost in the top eight to Burn, which was also not a great matchup. Um, you know, yeah, I but think this is one of the days where like 
we got to play fully powered Grixis Delver with like DRS, and I got to play a lot of mirrors, and I was just like, yo, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> like, give me the mirror match. I want that one. Just, I just, so many times I would turn over it and think you were losing, and then I'd turn back and really try to focus in into my match, and then I'd, you know, I'd be shuffling, I'd turn over and ask, like, are you up or down? And, yeah, I won that game. And I just had, I would have no idea how, but I didn't care. Yeah. There was, there was a game in that tournament where I was like less than 5% to win. Not only did I need to get lucky and play well, but I needed my opponent to draw an exact certain way. And that's the game. Do you remember at the end? I asked him, I was like, how many days? Is, did yeah. He and he had, had like three of them. Yeah. And he had three of them. And I was like, I was like, I need, I remember, I, I think I told you, I was like, I need him to draw days on like back to back turns to win because it was the only card in his deck. That's like a brick. You know? yeah. <laughs> like, yeah. Or whatever. Anyway. Uh, let's go ahead and move on to this mailbag like we were talking about because uh, we got multiple questions this week and I would like people to send in some more. Um, the first one is from uh, Jordab. It's J-O-R-D-A-B. He says, With how much both Modern Horizon sets have changed the modern metagame, do you think the sentiment of sticking to one deck and mastering it is still a good approach to, turn it, uh, approach to tournaments? I think the answer to that is mostly a yes, right? When in between sets coming out. Because, like, I, I gotta say this, the biggest effect we've seen on Modern in the last, like, you know, forever has been when Modern Horizons 1 and Modern Horizons 2 come out. It almost feels like Modern has had a rotation when those sets come out with how much they've impacted, how much the individual cards have done stuff, and then, you know, how many different decks they've spawned. Now, here's the thing. They haven't always spawned brand new decks. You know, sometimes they've enhanced decks or made them different. But if you're the kind of person who's playing in a decent bit of tournaments, like, you know, like you got a bunch of local stuff that you're playing and there's no tour to play every single week. There is something to be said about taking a deck that is a good competitive deck, right? I'm not talking about like a tier three deck. Sorry for people at home. If you like that, I don't care how good you are at it. It's You're going to run into the problem that your deck just isn't good enough at some points. But if your deck is good and you're very good with it, you can throw a lot of the like, oh, this is a bad matchup out the window. Because if you just play better than your opponent and understand what you're supposed to be doing, you're going to win games that you're quote unquote not supposed to. And you're going to get a higher win percentage with your deck along the way. So I think that there's always merits to mastering the deck that you're playing a tournament if you're going to be playing it often enough. Yeah, you certainly always want to, you know, have that level of mastery if you can. Um, but in this case, you know, the, the reality of magic tournaments is that you just don't have, you know, the, the appropriate time for every single tournament. Things mm -hmm. change so quickly. Um, my answer to the question would be that I, I think this is still a viable strategy. If you want to be that kind of person that just commits to a deck, uh, it is it is still viable. However, the range of decks that you can reasonably pick from to do this is much lower than it used to be, especially in a format like Modern. You know, I think there's under 10 decks where I would recommend, you know, locking into that deck and playing it for, let's say, like a full year if, uh, you know, uh, if you were doing it for like a year of a, of a tour of competitive events. Um, and, you know, uh, it would be like Shadow, Is It Murktide, um, you know, uh, Hammer, Amulet. Uh, maybe it's just those four that, like, I think are good enough that you can expect that they will still be good choices, even in bad metagames for over a full year. Um, and you always have to be, I would be wary of doing it in any year that a Modern Horizon set is released. I, I, you know, yeah. the, those sets have now just become benchmarks for the modern metagame. And, uh, you know, you have to prepare for things to change drastically when the, they are released. So you can only do it in years where modern horizon sets aren't released. And you can only do it with a, with a, like the real top tier decks. I would not just pick a tier two deck and say, I'm going to master this deck and play it in every tournament. Uh, you know, 
uh, at least w- without thinking about it. You know, I, I've advocated for creativity. I think the deck is excellent, uh, but things could turn against that deck pretty quickly. The thing is, it just hasn't put up the results for the metagame to react to it enough. But once that happens, like I will certainly look towards other options. Um, so I'm not committed to it in, the, in that you know same way uh, as I could be to Shadow or, or, or one of the other really top tier, very flexible archetypes. Yeah, so thanks for the great question, Jordab. Now, the second question comes from our lovely editor, Print Wagner. He says, what do you do in between rounds of big events? Do you scout tables if you're doing well, or do you just chill and snack? Um, go ahead, Ross. I relax as much as possible. I've, I've done the scouting thing before, especially for Pro Tours. Like, I've been on teams where we had a Google Doc that everyone had access yep. to, and between rounds, you were expected to walk around as much as possible and record. Now, usually that went on for, like, the first, you know, half of day one, and by then, you know, you're, uh, you know, your data was pretty well filled in because you'd figure out what all the te- big teams were playing and things like that. Um, so it's not like you were doing that every round, but you, you, you know, you did it at the very beginning of, of the tournament and usually for the, f- at least the first half of day one, if not all of day one, uh, and that's usually how it worked. Um, I know, you know, there was a time when we were really trying to team together a lot, the people with the people in Roanoke, uh, and we went to a tournament and the expectation for day two, if you didn't day one, because this was a year there was no players championship. So rather than play the, the you know, the classic or whatever, the expectation was that you would walk around in day two, scout as much as possible, and tell people what their matchups were so to help everyone you know who was in day two vying for a top eight. And we did that for for a short time. But honestly, like the advantage that you gain from that is a very little. And magic tournaments are so long, and I'm so old that I need to focus on you know keeping myself relaxed, keeping my brain in you know as high a shape as I possibly can, getting something to eat. Uh, and things like that, you know, all, all the little things that have been repeated ad infinitum by a million different people over the years, uh, you know, that stuff ends up paying off much more than have it, knowing your opponent's archetype, you know, where you, most of the time you're going to figure out your opponent's archetype by turn two of game one. And, uh, you know, you're the only decision that you're really uh, basing off of that knowledge is the mulligan decision in game one, which, yeah, like can be relevant, especially if your opponent's playing a very linear deck. Um, but in most cases, it's just not going to make much of a difference. So, yeah, I, I think that stuff like that is very overblown. I've heard people go off how like it's a huge advantage for the big teams at Pro Tours that they do all the scouting and they have all this information no one else has. Honestly, like it, it ended up being as much of a disadvantage at times uh, as an advantage being on a, a well-known team because then everyone would know to scout you and even if they hadn't seen you play because I was always one of the lesser known people, especially early on on a pro tour teams that like, you know, they would scout the people that I was testing with, see what they were playing and I was playing the same thing. And they would know that I was on the team because, you know, we had a roster or whatever and we were advertising and trying to get that sponsorship money. You know, I was wearing the same shirt uh, and stuff like that. So really not much of a difference uh, to that kind of stuff. So I just try to focus and make sure I'm as, you know, prepared mentally for the business end of the tournament as I can be. Yeah. Um, I don't know much I can add after that exceptionally long, exceptionally long and just exceptional answer from Ross because I'm old yeah, and like I'm tired, man, and stuff. So uh, I think it just comes down to how I'm feeling. There's definitely events in Ross Contestas where I'm more of a social butterfly. Like I'll get up and I'll walk around and like I'll go social, socially interact with people as much as possible. And honestly, it's just to keep my head outside of magic. Like 
I generally, you know, if you come up to me in between games, like I'll talk to you about magic if you want to talk about it, but you'll almost never hear me offer too much other than like some antidotal thing or like some quick little thing. And then I'm trying to change the subject to something else because I don't want to think about magic in between the games. I want to keep my brain on easy mode. You know, I want to like take it easy, kind of want to relax, etc. Yeah. That's not me saying you cannot come up to me and talk to me about the tournament that I'm in. You, you can obviously do that, you know, um, but mostly I'm just trying to relax as much as possible, especially, you know, if the tournaments are long and, you know, we're doing well, like you said, you know, we do between rounds of big events, like hopefully we're doing well. So we're going to be taking our time there and uh, hopefully, you know, keeping the brain going because that's the big problem I've had lately is I, I feel like I just don't have the longevity I did as a kid, which is just an, a natural thing. Yeah as so well so really just trying to stay sharp mm-hmm. yeah uh i think that about does it for this week so make sure that if you are coming out to indy in a few weeks or if you're on the fence ross and i will both be there so make sure that you uh come out you say hello we'll be there all day friday saturday i fly out late sunday night i think ross will probably be there sunday night. I, will, I will be leaving monday yeah he's leaving monday i'm leaving sunday night because i have stuff to do on monday mornings but make sure you come up to us we'll have what, tokens what time signed is your flight like 8.30 or uh, something like that. So. I was hoping it's, it would be a little later. Well, it's like the latest I could find. Yeah, so. because you're, but, you're uh, probably not flying direct. Uh, I'm flying direct there, and it's I'm, I'm having to take a little bit of a risk with that because there's only one direct flight from like anywhere in my state to Indianapolis for some reason. And then home, I'm flying like to Charleston and then like have a really quick la- you know layover, like a 40-minute layover. South Carolina, West Virginia? Yeah, it's, yeah I think South Carolina. The, the what's What's the really big airport? over there it's south carolina right or charlotte i'm sorry charlotte did i say charleston yeah you said I charleston. charlotte okay i don't know why i said charleston the, I the charlotte. actual really big airport is atlanta because it's the biggest one in the world yeah but charlotte is yeah. also quite big that's the one i fly american mostly so uh yeah, that's, that's the one i'm, I'm flying american fly. yeah so yeah i fly american a lot as well so um but make sure you come up and say hi to us we'll have uh it, it, and even if only one of us is around we'll have some some signed uh tokens for y'all maybe a couple unsigned as you want or only from one of us if you're like hey i don't like tannin very much but i really like you ross he'll he'll sign a token by himself for you and he'll write tannin sucks on it so uh there you go i might do that on all of them right now <laughs> if you need an if you need a nettlesis token you know we got you you know if you need if you need a token for something there you go so make sure you come up and say hi to us we'd absolutely love to see and hear from each and every one of you. So make sure you take a, a second out of your day, Friday, Saturday, Sunday, to come up and tell us what we're doing right and what we're doing wrong when it comes to this kind of stuff. So anyway, we'd love to see you all there. That's going to do it for this week's uh, episode. Ross, if people want to get a little more from you, where would they go? Okay, best place is uh, my Twitter account. I am at Ross Hunnids. I'm currently figuring out what I'm going to do magic-wise post-SCG, and it will be announced there. So if you want to support me and figure out what I'll be doing, that's the best place to follow and find that out. Um, my written content for Star City Games, I have one more article left to write. That'll go up next week on, on Tuesday. This week's article, as I said earlier, is just all about um, four-color creativity and modern. So if you like that deck like I do, want to get an updated list, cyber guide, and all that jazz, that's up now. Uh, but one more article, I'd love for you all to read that. Um, then Star City Games, um, unfortunately, we were not able to do a show yesterday. We're recording this on a Friday. We did not do yesterday's show. Uh, I was a little under the weather. Uh, I have t- taken a COVID test since then. I am negative, so um, and I'm recovered at this point. Uh, I think it was just a stomach bug or something like that. So, uh, so unfortunately, missed out on one of the last episodes. We got two more versus lives for you all. Uh, that'll be next week where we cover some of our favorite Pro Tour and PTQ deck lists from Corey and mine's, uh, you know, careers. 
so with Corey, you'll get, you know, all decks from the last three or four years. With me, you'll get some ones that are much older. Um, and uh, we'll have some fun with that. Uh, so that's going to be Tuesday and Thursday next week, 1 to 4 p.m. on the Star City Games uh, Twitch channel. Uh, and if you can't catch us live, uh, you can find the VODs on the YouTube channel the next day. Tuesday will be Corey's day. Thursday will be my day, just to clarify that. Um, and then finally, my stream, I promise you, it is coming back uh, as soon as I, you know, get the computer fixed and get everything set up. Uh, but if you want to toss me a follow on Twitch in the meantime so that you get notified there when I start going live again, I'm Ross underscore Miriam on Twitch. Tannen, people want to find more from you. Where can they go? Uh, Twitter is the best place. Uh, that is uh, the Tannen Grace on Twitter. On Twitch, just Tannen Grace. I have been doing uh, a decent bit of streaming with the new set. And if you enjoy my commentary, I will be doing commentary for the NRG event this weekend. I will only be doing Sunday coverage, though. So that will be the limited portion of the event. So make sure you tune into that. Uh, more will be on my Twitter because that event will probably have already happened by the time you hear this. And you will probably see me tweet about it. That's why I didn't really talk about it too much today. But anyway, thanks for listening to the show this week. And everybody, we will see you all next week. <laughs>